Welcome back to Moments in Leadership, or welcome if this is your first time. I'm the host, Dave Armstrong, and I've got three things I kind of want to jump on real quick before I get going into this week's interview with Major Tom Schumann. First is, I had an opportunity to go out to 29 Palms the other week towards the end of July and observe the Reserve ITX, the ITX 4-22, and got to go out there with some other folks. Uh, Goons Up was there with me, Expeditionary Leader, 04 Expeditionary Leader was there with me, the Communicator was there, and Constellation Group was there with me. And we got to observe a day's worth of training out there, 410, 410 Alpha. We went out and saw some mounted machine gun shooting on the uh, vehicle range, and then finally got over to hit up India Battery 314, which was a composite battery for this exercise made up of both the Marines and sailors of Indio 314 out of Pennsylvania, but also uh, augmented by Marines from 210, which was really interesting. Got to get out there and pull the lanyard and see, you know, see how artillery was doing. It was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed that. But I'll tell you, if you're active duty and you're thinking about getting out and you're not considering the reserves, I think you're making a serious mistake, if not at least an oversight and not educating yourself more on what's available out there with uh, a direct affiliation with a Marine Corps Reserve unit in whatever town you're going to ultimately end up in, you know, after active duty. So please take the time to check that out. I This isn't a slogan that the Marine Corps Reserves will use, but I will, which is it's all the cool shit without a lot of the bullshit. So definitely make sure you check that out because I watch those guys out there rocking and rolling. And I'm telling you, I couldn't tell who was in 210, who was in 314, who was in 225, who was in 17. Everybody was out there just whipping it on and getting it done. Second thing I wanted to alert everybody to was I, I have decided to move forward with the with conceptually the idea of creating what I am using as a working title, the hot wash. I mentioned this on the last podcast, but this is um, an idea that I had to create something. If you've watched The Walking Dead and after after the TV show, they had the talking dead, you know, they talk about the show. So the hot wash is an idea that I had to get a bunch of captains or NCOs, depending on who the previous few guests were and actually do a hot wash or an, or an after action and, and lead a panel discussion with three, four five captains or sergeants and just dissect the previous episodes and get their opinions on what was said and how they have seen it, not seen it, implemented it, not implemented it. How did it change their mind? How did it shape their thinking on something in the future? And I think it could be a pretty cool way to do. I've already started work on assembly. I got somebody helped me cobble together five active captains. One, one's a major, I think, but just brand new. And they were all SBCs together at the basic school. So they're a pretty tight group of captains. They volunteered to kind of kick this idea around and I'm excited to see what we can get going with that. So that's the idea for that. And then third, with that effort, I have decided to go ahead and launch a Patreon account. And you can find that at uh, www.patreon.com backslash moments in leadership. And I'm just going to test this idea out. And and here's here's where the here's the genesis of this idea. I, I spend a decent amount of money on doing these episodes, and like any hobby, you know that's fine. But I was having a conversation when I was out at ITX in the officers' club there, or what they call the Brass and Rockers, which is the staff and O club now. It's pretty nice, by the way. And somebody said, you know, if your podcast went away tomorrow, and it was because 
he just ran out of financial resources to do it. And I knew that if I had chipped in a couple of bucks, that the equivalent of the beer that I just bought you every single month, and that would have kept it alive, I would have done it. And I, I just got to thinking that maybe there are some people out there that do want to contribute or whatever, still listen. I'm not going to stop doing the podcast, but I think there are some people out there who would generally be interested in chipping in and helping defray some of the costs. So I've decided to do it. So check that out if you're interested in it. And I have some of the different levels in there, but basically it's like, hey, if you saw me in a bar and you're like, let me buy you a beer because I like your podcast, it's kind of the same thing. So that's that. So um, with that, let me go ahead and get going here with today's episode with Major Tom Schumann. I'm titling this, No One Wants to Drink Tea With Me, Leading a Platoon in Combat, How Leadership is Simple But Not Easy, The Philosophy of Command After Leading an Infantry Company, and Tom's new book, Always Faithful, which is coming out on Amazon and everywhere else tomorrow, August 8th. And finally, we have a discussion about Walking Point at Patrol Base Apate. So this is really a great episode with one of the decade's most experienced company-level combat leaders. And we discuss his most powerful moments in combat as a young lieutenant platoon commander and how he was ambushed just moments out of stepping out of the friendly lines on his very first combat patrol. And I asked him to debrief himself and tell me what he learned and what he did well and what he did, what he would do differently looking back on his very first action. And he shed some light on how leadership is simple, but never easy. And I like that saying. He explains how he would adopt a more harmonious approach to company command rather than what he describes as a ruthless drive for results first. Then, of course, we discuss the new book, Always Faithful, a story of war in Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul, and the unshakable bond between a Marine and an interpreter. We wrap up by discussing the foundation he created, Patrol Base Abate, which personally I'm honored to be a member of the board of directors there. And Patrol Base Abate is named after Marine Sergeant Matt Abate, who was posthumously awarded the Navy Cross. And Matt became the inspiration behind creating this place where everyone who's raised their hand and sworn an oath and wrote a blank check payable up to and including the amount of their own lives, they have a place where they feel like they can rest and refit by re-entering friendly lines. So this is an incredibly insightful and empowering discussion that I think leaders of all branches of the services and all ages and can get something out of. So with that, Tom, welcome to Moments in Leadership. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really, this is really great to have you on. A lot of exciting things going on in your life and got a book coming out soon. We're going to talk about that, but I'm really excited to talk to you about some leadership. You're really prolific on social media with a lot of leadership thoughts and tips for young leaders to follow. And I think this will be a great discussion. And I, and I always like to start these conversations out by just saying, who's Tom Schumann? Where did he come from? What's his background? How did he become a Marine? This will be, unfortunately, the most boring part of the uh, segment. So I came from Chicago. I grew up on the south side of the city. My mom was a Chicago cop. Uh, 9-11 happened while I was in high school. And that was, I, I, I did not grow up uh, watching G.I. Joe or have, you know, Marine posters hanging on my wall. I I probably didn't know that the Marine Corps was a, a thing when 9-11 happened in high school. All I knew is at that moment, I would serve. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what the four branches of service were. I don't have a long history of family service. And I also felt like I wanted to go to college. And so there's a thing called ROTC. And so there seemed to be an opportunity to potentially set myself up to be able to serve and also go to school. And so I did ROTC. 
I did Naval ROTC because that's the first one that came up when I was searching scholarships at Loyola. And I started off my little orientation week thinking I was going to be a sailor. By the end of that orientation week up at Great Lakes Naval Base, I knew I wanted to be a Marine based on the first class midshipmen who were going to be Navy officers and the first class midshipmen who were going to be Marine officers. I said, I think that those ones. And that's kind of what got me uh, on that, that path and showed up to TBS still not knowing who I was or really what I wanted to be. And pretty quickly I said, okay, I see the people who are not infantry and I see the people who are infantry. I want to be like those guys. And then it wasn't until IOC at some point running around in the Quantico woods that I finally understood that, yes, this is the right profession. This is the right calling. I'm in the right place. And this is exactly what I was meant to do. And, but it was a long, kind of a long journey from uh, 9-11, 2001 to that was probably July, 2009, before I kind of really understood really what I was kind of getting myself into. So when you came into ROTC, and this this may be a little bit different when I came in, so so break this down for us older people. Did you come in on a scholarship to ROTC, or did you come in and compete for a scholarship? I was what they call a college programmer, meaning yeah, okay. I did not have a scholarship. Most people, most people, most midshipmen in ROTC, I think, come in on scholarship. I think 90% of folks come in on scholarship out of high school. I'm the first person to go to college in my family. I was uh, kind of a figuring out on the fly how to go to college. And so I did not have my ROTC scholarship application in on time. And I applied for it at the beginning of my freshman year. And I, I think this is speculative, but I think, you know, once they know they got you in the program, they're not in a rush to start paying you. So <laughs> I, I think generally those college programmers pick up around their junior year because I did not also, I didn't have a great GPA or physical fitness test at the time. So it's not, so maybe it's, maybe it's not the program. Maybe it was me because that could have very well been the, the case. I could have been the, the, the issue, but you only have until your junior year to pick up the scholarship. Otherwise, you no longer could be in the ROTC program. So I did PLC juniors my sophomore year summer. So in 2006, I went to OCS. And on graduation day, while we were doing our final rehearsal, my AMY from ROTC was one of the uh, sergeant instructors there. He came over and said, hey, I knew you had the scholarship, but I thought you needed the extra training. Oh, uh, Jesus. <laughs> so uh, I was like, oh, thank you, Gunny. And he was right. I probably did need the extra training. So I I, I showed up to Bulldog, which was all the ROTC uh, OCS. And so that was the first time I was one of the few people who had already done OCS. Gone uh, to OCS, sure. Yeah. And so I was actually just a little bit squared away, not like super squared away, but I was at least uh, not showing my ass all the time like I did in juniors. That's interesting because so like you, I came into ROTC as a college program. So in my day, you couldn't be a Marine college program, like a Marine option. I'm using my air quotes for listeners. Yep. You couldn't be a Marine unless you went to OCS 
And then after that was when you could wear the EGNA on your on your cover and wear the red name tag instead of the black name or whatever what the things were. Yeah, kind yeah. Of different. And the belt <laughs> buckle. You, you, right, they are. They're very important. Yeah. I, I Somewhere in my keepsake box, I have my red name tag from my ROTC days. But that's interesting. So you went to OCS, PLCs, almost like a hedge, but then picked up the scholarship and then had to go again. I will admit publicly now, I did not enjoy OCS. It was very, it was hard for me. I, I was, I was seriously challenged at OCS. So I don't think that I would have been very excited to do what you did and go back twice. Yeah. I, I think OCS is not hard in that you just yell out and run fast, but it requires some organization. It requires people to be squared away, to be able to make a rack well, to be able to, you know, keep their uniform nice. These are kind of things that I've never naturally been good at. There are some people who are better at those types of of, of tasks. Uh, so OCS is definitely not a place that I shined at. It, it wasn't a place I struggled, but it wasn't a place that I shined. By the end of 06 OCS, those sergeant instructors, that was under Colonel Steele, this is terrible to be telling like OCS war stories, but uh, I mean, the end of that summer in 06, I was, I came back in my, uh, I had a retired Navy captain who was one of my professors for poli sci. And he asked me in class, like, tell us a little bit about OCS. And I was like, we drill, <laughs> you know, I was so into it. I was like, <laughs> we smack rifles. Uh, so I was, it was, uh, 06 was a hard time to go to OCS. I, I went because I got to see two different CEOs of OCS. The next time I went, it was Colonel Mancini. Sure. And it was definitely a kinder, gentler OCS in 07 than 06. Really? Yeah. Colonel, I think it was Colonel Chase. He, he used to, he would stand at the top of that, whatever that hill was, and just like, quit candidate. You should quit. You're worthless. And like <laughs> he was mean, and the sergeant instructors were very mean. And it was a physically. O six was way more challenging. O seven, I think we were headed into the surge, and um, it was a little bit. Yeah, it was definitely a, a, a kinder, gentler OCS experience. That's really interesting for me to hear because, and again, we won't we won't get onto OCS war stories too much because you're right. But second lieutenant Armstrong worked for then captain. Rick Mancini, when he was in the tank battalion, and I was his fire support coordinator, and I spent two weeks in the back of an Amtrak C7 with him, and he was a very strict, no bullshitting around, tough officer. I remember at some point in the exercise, I had said something funny, and he laughed, kind of, and then he caught himself laughing and stopped, almost like he was embarrassed that he had laughed for a second. I looked at him and I said, sir, it's the first time I've ever seen you laugh. He goes, Armstrong, that's the first time I've ever laughed in my life. Just kind of <laughs> joking around. So it's funny when you say that it was, it was uh, easier under him. He was a very impactful leader in young Second Lieutenant Armstrong's life. I would say he, would, he was an officer that I tried to emulate, failed, because he was just that good. So you, you finish up OCS. So you said something in the beginning I want to kind of come back to because you were like, I, I figured out that I wanted to be an infantry officer out in the woods at Quantico at TBS. I'm surprised to hear that because, you know, I, for listeners, I, you and I know each other outside of all this a little bit. I would have never guessed that. I would have thought that Tom Schumann would have come into ROTC belt-fed infantry officer right from the get-go. That's not true? I'm a 
lost in the sauce soup sandwich. You know, I, I, I just, I didn't know what it meant to be in the military. I didn't know what it meant to be a Marine. I, again, I, not a long history of, I wasn't watching platoon or full metal jacket in, in high school or college. I was listening to, you know, the Beatles and the Grateful Dead and hacky sack wearing a tie dye t-shirt, <laughs> you know, I just, uh, it just wasn't where my head was at. And I probably should have read some books or done something to kind of help me think about what I wanted to do. But I, I mean, in my ROTC unit, there was no, there, there was no like me step that was infantry. My, the, my, my first AMY wasn't 0369, but that was my freshman year. And I was still too early to even have an appreciation for what that might mean. When I got to TBS, it was just, we went out to FEX 1 and everybody wanted to be infantry before FEX 1. It was 15 degrees. Everybody's canteens froze. It was a miserable experience at FEX 1. And because mostly it's, it's miserable because most of us don't know how to camp, like just to go right. outside. And sure. so uh, that's our many people's first times have to live outside for a weekend. And after that, no one wanted to be infantry anymore. And I said, well, if that's the case, if you all don't want to do this, I do want to do it. And so that that was my first inclination. It wasn't because I had an unyielding passion to be a grunt. It's because I thought, oh, if everybody else now doesn't want to do this, that makes me now want to do this thing. And that was my first step towards being infantry. And once I had that idea post FEX one at TBS that I want to be infantry. I, I mean, I started to really become, yes, this is every time I would do my interview with my SBC, Schumann, what are your top three infantry? Okay. What's your next one? Infantry. Uh, I know that <laughs> Schumann, what do you want? Infantry. And then he just kicked me out every time. And it was a very short conversation with my SBC. So I, I, I mean, but that was still an assumption that I wanted infantry. I didn't really know I, I wanted infantry again. It was just, but when, when I, there was something, there was a call to the wild at IOC where I very much had this rite of passage, kind of part of my hero's journey where I went out to the woods and I really started to do some self-discovery. And, and there was something latent in me that something that was aggressive, something that wanted to attack. And I didn't know that thing existed really. And I, and I tapped into it some point in July 2009 running around those woods and and I've held on to that uh, since you know so most of the people that I interview on this podcast have been people who have had careers for 30 years so I can ask them the question like can you go back to you know, your first 5 years and draw on any sort of aha moments that have been really impactful in your last 5 years this is a unique timeline to deal with so I, I want to spend some time on your on your lieutenant time and and specifically want to start off with IOC and, and ask a question a little bit out of order. But I think IOC got really hard sometime in the beginning part of the war. And I don't know when that was, but I think it got harder, right? There was this test, this physical fitness test you had to pass on the first day or you were gone kind of thing that didn't exist when, when my friends were going through IOC. So I'm curious, when you went to IOC, did you see lieutenants who wanted to be infantry not make it through IOC? Yeah, absolutely. To me, the standards were very high and appropriate. The quality of instruction was phenomenal, and not everybody made it. 
and when I was there, the CET was an event. I don't think it was some of those things did not get codified the way they are now until after my IOC class, where it was mm-hmm. a very clear pass fail. I still think there was more autonomy to the IOC cadre to determine who passed, who didn't. Whereas now, much of that stuff is very black and white. But but absolutely, we had several drops in my IOC class, guys who were fit strong, but just did not hack it. That's really what I want to get to in the question is, is there, was there a common trait or even if there weren't common traits, what were those traits that you witnessed that caused people to fail? Because these are, these are Marine officers who have been through a screening test at OCS, right? That's because that's not really a training evolution. That's a screening and selection process. However you want to talk about it. TBS is a, is a defining informative time. It's six months long. So you've, you, there is some evaluation being done there. And like you said, the SPCs are, I mean, they're granting that MOS essentially. So they're looking at the infantry officers and saying this person could be a good infantry officer or not. And then they get to IOC and they don't make it. Is there a characteristic that you saw? Are there traits that you could pass on to leaders who are listening to this as an example of, hey, here, here were some of the failure points? It, it was very much command presence decisiveness, ability to deliver an order, ability. So it, it was during those evaluated, you know, it's it's just like everything else. You get one or two days where you're the, you're the platoon commander. Mm-hmm. And if if you could not get on the train model and say, all right, orientation, here's where we're at. Here's and if you couldn't project that confidence that I want to follow this guy. You know, at the end of it, it you had to, everybody's saying, is this somebody you want to follow? Are you right. ready to follow this guy into an attack? And if, if the answer was came back in the negative, I think uh, that meant you, you, you weren't going to be an infantry officer. Yeah, but, but that wasn't sussed out at TBS? Obviously, it wasn't. No, I don't think the TBS vetting system is perfect. I, I think plenty yeah. of people end up at IOC that maybe shouldn't have been but it's a, it's a pretty good system at tvs yeah. but like anything it's not a perfect system okay so i'll ask the question a little bit differently were there any wow moments where somebody didn't make it through ioc and you're like whoa i never saw him not making it or were there moments where you saw like yeah i i always had my doubts about that person no names just generalities i think generally ioc and in july 2009 it separated the people who should not have been infrastructures and and kept for the most part, there, I, I think there's still probably two or three guys who got through that we all kind of thought mm, not not guys we would have necessarily wanted to fight alongside. But ultimately, I think IOC is a it's a phenomenal school, and it's a top ten period of my life. Those three months were some of the most fun, formative three months of my life. I look back on it very fondly. I was having fun the whole time I was at IOC because you're doing those sucky things, but you're doing them with your friends. Yeah. And those friends that I made at IOC uh, are lifelong friends. I don't want to do IOC in my 36 year old body, but if I could be in my 22 year old body again, I would love to do IOC again. It was, it was just, you're getting paid every day to shoot machine guns, shoot rockets. I mean, it's, you're getting paid to drop mortars. It's it's an awesome opportunity and uh, just such a great school. And I could gush about IOC all day. And it turns out, I mean, all that's nice. But what IOC does is it you report to the fleet 
proficient in your MOS. You yeah. report to the fleet ready to lead infantry Marines. And so that that's really what's important about ISD is, is it, it, it gives you that mental and physical toughness, but it gives you the proficiency and competency. Now, of course, like anything, there's still lots to learn from your NCOs. There's still you're, you're a lifelong learner. There's still to be a student of your profession. All those things apply. But on the first day that you report in as an infantry platoon commander, you have the prerequisite knowledge, competency, and proficiency to lead infantry Marines. And, and that yeah. ISD absolutely equips you with. And that's really what I think an MOS school should be doing. You're right about that. And people have commented on past episodes of the podcast, specifically my most recent interview with Major General Dale Alford, you know, to instruction falls underneath him in his billet. We talked about the product that's coming out of IOC and how, how IOC is run by captains and doing some of the most dangerous and, well, I'll say death-defying, but it's probably not, but dangerous, risky training that the entire United States Marine Corps does. They do it safely, and they do a great job of creating, I'll use a, a civilian word, a product, the second lieutenant, the infantry second lieutenant. But then Sergeant Major Dan, Dan Reynolds made the same point as, as a Sergeant Major, that the product coming out of IOC and TBS is, is a solid product. But then there is that eventual day that you check in. And to, so to set the stage for me to ask you that question, let me just rewind a little bit. and I want to know when you find out what unit you're going to and did you even know when you when you heard three five were you like that's where i want to go or you're like okay great that's on the west coast it's good enough for me what was your what was your reaction to that and then and then i want to use that as as a segue into now it's second lieutenant schumann's very first day in front of his platoon and i want i want to dig in for like a good 15 minutes on that first day or maybe the first month sure i actually Thank courtesy of Facebook memories, these things kind of come up because I was yeah. at IOC in July. And so, you know, 13 or 14, I think it was 13 years ago, my Facebook memory came up and said, Tom is praying for California. And then it said, like, thank God, Camp Pendleton, highly motivated, get some. <laughs> it's like the yeah. most boot, boot post <laughs> you could exactly. ever. I'm so glad that social media was so limited back then because i would definitely be i've embarrassed myself with some really boots some cringy stuff. old posts yeah no i i just knew that i'm not a swamp guy i didn't I, I you know i grew up in chicago i'm not woods guy and so i just knew that i wanted to go to camp pendleton and that's all i knew and i didn't know what unit i wanted to go to camp pendleton i just knew i wanted to go to camp pendleton and and so nine of us got orders to three, five, and a couple got orders, I think, to one, four. And, and so there, there was only 12 lieutenants from 100 that, that got Camp Pendleton, that IOC class. And Oh, wow. There's 100 students in the IOC class? Yeah. Was that big or is that normal? I, I guess it it's normal. Normal. I, yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think it's, it's like 50 from Alpha Company, and it was like 50 from Bravo. It's, it's, okay. And so we have, we have two TBS classes. And so, no, I, I was so stoked. And then I looked up 3-5 and saw I had some badass history. And I, yeah, of course, that was exciting. I just knew I was going to Camp Pendleton, and I was very, very excited about that. And then I picked up a copy of With the Old Breed by E.B. Sledge. 
And I started to read that as I PCS after IOC and which, which reading, I didn't finish the book until I checked in and, you know, reading about Kilo 3.5 on Peleliu and sitting in the Kilo company office and outside the Kilo company office, there's a picture of Kilo company out on Peleliu where EB Sledge just signed it and a bunch of the Marines, you know, that, that was super, that's when I started to get an appreciation four three fives history, the legacy of the unit. And that was really motivating and inspiring to to have this incredible book to be able to read and 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 connect to, to my unit history. And you know, I I, I don't want to get too ahead, but I'm I am going to get too ahead. You know, it's I'm I'm walking around the CP within the last week as I check in the three five. I just the history is so rich. And I appreciated it as a lieutenant, but I appreciate it even more now as a, a major and I, I can't remember exactly what the question was but yeah i i wanted to go yeah, to Pel- was- I, I wanted to go to pendleton and then when i found out the three five i was very i was excited yeah that that was the, that was a question it was you know what was it like when you found out you're going to three five i've mentioned this to you before i won't belabor the point but i've got family that served in three five in vietnam so i've always had that special place in my heart for three five just because i knew the stories that my uncle told me from his time in vietnam but so now you're second lieutenant shooting, right? You got your alphas on, what you've got your national defense medal, right? And you're shooting badges and you're showing up. So you got assigned to the actual battalion, right? It's not like you checked into regiment and they assigned you down to a battalion. You knew which battalion you were going to. Nine of us. Nine of us were oh. reported in a three five. Okay. So did all nine of you walk into the EXO's office on the same day at the same time, or did you go in by yourself? And what was that day like? I think all nine of us, I mean, all, I don't think all nine of us essentially checked in collectively on a, on a specific day. And so I, I don't remember checking in with the XO. I remember being in the battalion conference room with the Sergeant Major and uh, now General Morris. And uh, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Morris. Lieutenant Colonel Morris gave us his intent. Sergeant Major gave us a scowl. And Sergeant Major Bushway. <laughs> and uh, he still is the all-time standard of sergeant majors in my opinion sergeant major bushway he was terrifying i'm still scared of him is he still in he retired uh, i think several years ago like probably 2014 he was i linked back up with him at school of infantry but uh he was just the hardest meanest man and uh i'll tell maybe a story or two about him because he really did set the standard for all sergeant majors to follow and basically chrome morris was just like Gave us his intent and that said, you three are going to Kilo, you're going to India, you're going to Lima. And I got sent to Kilo with Cam West and Will Donnelly. Rob Kelly went to Lima. Brad Fromm, Joe Patterson went to India. Postma went to Lima. Uh, Byler went to Lima. And so, yeah, we, we just went to our respective companies, checked in with our COs and, and went to the field with the SIF and then went out to the field. That's basically okay. what, what we did. How were you introduced to your first toon sergeant and what was he like and what was that like? And what was the first, I don't know, 30 minutes of your conversation like with an, as a brand new second lieutenant with a seasoned, probably combat experienced platoon sergeant? Sure. I wish I had a better kind of story about my first platoon sergeant. It took me three to get to the one that I, I kept. He was a tiny firecracker guy, very motivated definitely squared away 
my first conversation, I don't necessarily recall with my platoon sergeant. We went out to the field. We observed the company during a PEX, but we didn't get involved with any of the platoons. And then I didn't meet the platoon until they came out of the field. And I don't remember what I said to my platoon or, or, or didn't. Hopefully, I, you know, I'm still good friends with all my squadies. I can ask them if I sounded like an idiot or not. I remember distinctly meeting my platoon. I don't remember distinctly what I said. But in terms of my first platoon sergeant, he would yell at the platoon a lot and make them run around a lot. But I, I, I felt like he did not, you know, I, we couldn't talk tactically really in any depth. And there wasn't a whole lot there besides the ability to just always yell at the Marines. And I thought, well, I need more out of a platoon sergeant than just someone who could yell at my Marines. And an IA came up. Uh, at that time, there was tons of IAs to, to Iraq. So an individual augment, isn't that what that stands for, right? Uh, came yeah, up. I think so. And so he went, when Kilo Company said, we need an 0369 to go, I said, sir, I think maybe my staff sergeant would be a good fit for that. That was my first platoon sergeant. My second platoon sergeant, I, we were at Bridgeport and we were on the first day going up the mountain, said, oh, I, I got a tight hamstring <laughs> and, and then never went up the mountain. And uh, left me up on the mountain with Sergeant Humphrey, my first squad leader, stepped up to be my platoon sergeant. But I didn't have a lot of other NCO leadership at that time. And so it was Bridgeport is all about discipline. There's just you, you need in, in the winter, you need a ton of discipline to do the things right up there. It's a time that you really need a platoon sergeant to help you supervise and, and lead that platoon. So. That sucked not having him. Sergeant Humphrey did great. He and I really bonded through that training exercise. So maybe that that was actually a, a blessing. But when we got back again, they said we need somebody for the advisor team from Kilo Company. And I said, and maybe this is a good lesson on personnel because you can kind of see how like the Marine Corps continually cannibalizes. Yeah. And so I said, okay, here's a guy for this IA team. And then that's when I got Black Jesus, now First Sergeant Tim Henley. Staff Sergeant Henley, he had just been promoted from sergeant, and he is my brother for life. He is a person who I love in a in a unique way more than any other man. Yeah, I wouldn't be here today without him, and I could I could spend the next three hours just uh, as a love note to Tim Henley. And that's when I finally got my counterpart. Thank God for Staff Sergeant Henley. Yeah, I, I could talk three hours about my first platoon sergeant too, a guy named Ed Garrison. Uh, you know, just I don't know if I would have, well, to the extent that I consider myself having any sort of success in the Marine Corps, I owe a majority of it to him. That first experience, I think, when you really click with your counterpart running a platoon, it's so important. I have a funny feeling. There's no statistics on this, so this is just my opinion, but I'll bet you a lot of good officers' careers were never really formed properly from the beginning just by just because of fate by not being matched up with somebody they clicked with or that was helpful to them. I can't imagine being an awesome lieutenant and never having a good staff NCO counterpart. I I just don't think that that success equation exists. And that's something that but, they, they don't talk about at TBS or IOC is, is what happens when you don't get, you know, it's it's always you're getting drilled, like respect your NCOs, respect your staff NCOs, listen to your staff NCOs. And and that's all true mm -hmm. that no one ever says, Oh, and maybe you might not 
have a, have a good one. Here's here's how you will handle not having a good NCO or staff NCO, which the majority of NCOs and staff NCOs are good. The majority of officers are good, but there there are definitely not talented officers. There are definitely not talented staff NCOs that have have made it that far. And and I ran into the same problem when I took company command. I my first first sergeant was not it. And what I think many people find surprising about me is as from day one I felt I wasn't arrogant, you know, but I was confident that I I was I knew how to lead a platoon. I knew how to be an infantryman. I knew also I had a ton to learn about leading a platoon and about being an infantryman. But at the same time I was ready. I knew that this this was not it. And to as a second lieutenant to say that this is not it. It was, uh, and, and, you know, when I checked in as a company commander, I said, this is not it. And it's always my responsibility to initially, and this is interesting, right? Because it's still your responsibility, even as a second lieutenant, to train, mentor, and develop that platoon sergeant, that staff and right, seal, which yeah. seems which seems crazy because you are one year into a job and he is 10 years into a job. And so I still owe it to that staff NCO to train, mentor, and develop him and to help him be the platoon sergeant that the platoon needs and, and that I need. But at some point you have to have the ability to recognize this person is not going to cut it. And, and the tricky thing is, is knowing how long do you take to, to try to do that process because you don't have a ton of time. And on the back end, it's always potentially going to combat. And it's like, you've got to at some point transition to the, to the right person and, and knowing when to do that is part of um, a little bit of an art, I think, to that, to, yeah. to know when when you have to shift fires to, to potentially make that move. And it's always really painful, really difficult, and a, kind of an emotional event. Yeah, and it's also a little bit outside your control, too, because you're a lieutenant. Like, you're not firing your platoon sergeant. you got to go to the skipper for that, right? Okay. So you got to convince you know, a guy who's got – 10 years of experience that another guy with 10 years of experience isn't cutting it. And that opinion is coming from the guy with 30 hot seconds of experience. Correct. Tough thing to manage there. So did you ever have any initial conversations with your company commander about, Hey, I'm not sure this is the guy or was he as observant of it as you were, or did you just not talk about it at all? And there was just the attrition through the IA billets that took care of everything. I'm sure I brought up, my concerns to my company commander uh, about him, but I, I think the attrition was natural through the amount of IAs that were coming down. So it didn't, it never became a big issue. You know, it was, yeah. it was during my attempts to train mentor and develop. And then two to three months into that IA came up and then I would, then we were at Bridgeport. I was a couple months into having my new platoon sergeant and the IA came up. So it, it kind of took care of itself, which none of that is, really the right way to go about business in that you, you're transferring an issue rather than kind of fixing an issue. But unfortunately, that's something that often happens in, in the Marine Corps. I just, my new CO's guidance, Dark Horse 6 that I work for now, and his his guidance, he's got a document called accountability. And he makes it very clear that there will not be a transfer of an issue it'll be addressed and resolved one way or the other and i, I really admire and appreciate that mentality and philosophy. yeah i i agree and and 
leaders, senior or junior, or just coming into the system, I, I, I will echo that sentiment that, and I, I said this to General Furness on our recent interview, and I said to him that I've seen more people fired in the civilian world in a year than I saw in my Marine Corps career, career, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we so talk a hard. big game about accountability and you either, you know, pack it or pack it. And there's really not a whole lot of packing it that goes on. There's shuffling that goes on. And I think it takes a strong leader to stand up and say, hey, when you go through the process of counseling, I don't, I don't want to go through all that now unless you want to, but as a leadership tool, you've got to learn how to counsel your Marines, set the expectations, set the conditions for their success, and then monitor their success and failure and give them rudder corrections until you've determined that it's just, you know, you're at the end of your line and then you've got to do something about it. And shuffling people isn't the right thing to do. And, and showing them the door probably is the right thing to do. I never saw a whole lot of people fired. Yeah, it, it, part of it, it's, it's so, I mean, it's, it's government work. And I think government is, it's, at the end of the day, it is still government work. And, and it's so time intensive. It's so time intensive to relieve someone properly that it, that's why the shuffle button usually gets hit. And again, it's not the right thing to do. But it, to relieve someone, like you said, you, you start with the initial counseling. Here's your expectations. Here's your responsibility. And then you have to continue to tie subsequent counselings to the initial counselling, point out where that deficiency was, offer corrections, offer how they can remediate those deficiencies, provide resources to remediate those deficiencies, given another evaluation period. And then, okay, so then in 30 days, we're going to follow up. And then after 30 days, you sit down and you say, here's where you're still deficient tied to your initial counseling and your built responsibilities and duties. And you have to build a massive file to justify that relief. And it just at the, the, the tempo and the pace is not conducive to doing that. And, right. and yeah. it was one of the most, when I was a company commander, it was my greatest leadership challenge and one of the, my most emotionally taxing endeavors was to relieve my first sergeant that I had in the Marine Corps. And, uh, and it should have never been that difficult, but it was so, so painful and hard. Yeah. I definitely have that coming up as a topic of conversation, sticking on your Lieutenant time for just, well, not for just a second, because your, your Lieutenant time was pretty formative and I'll, I'll move it along, but I'm assuming that your platoon sergeant, Staff Sergeant Henley, he was the platoon sergeant that you took into combat. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So for timeline purposes, how quickly was it when you checked in that you knew you were deploying to Afghanistan? Was it, did you already know, like three, five when you're standing there with the, the Sergeant major and okay. So you, you didn't know that the battalion was going then all of a sudden, Hey, we're, we're in the, we're in the loop. So I, I checked in in September of 2009. We found out at Christmas Liberty formation that we were going to Afghanistan. And I'll tell you, 3-5 had just got back from a, a 31st Mew. We were headed to another 31st Mew. And it was a really demoralizing time in the battalion because you had 3-5 in Iraq from 04 to 08 continuously. And so you had all the seniors all had Iraq experience, even though the, the later deployments weren't that kinetic. And then all these young Marines all joined to go fight in Iraq and then they show up and they go on the 31st Mew and get treated like not well by the seniors who's, you know, I was in Iraq 
you were not. Weren't. Yeah. And then I take the platoon and we're going to Okinawa again. And motivation, morale, and discipline were not high. And I come in, hey, we're getting ready to go to combat. Like, let's focus. And everyone's like, yeah, we heard the same thing from the last lieutenant and we went to Okinawa. And, and so there was hazing in my platoon right when I checked in. There was a bunch of hazing. There was a bunch of discipline issues. And those three months were really challenging. And, and, and NCOs were leaving to other units that were going to Iraq or Afghanistan. So people were finding their way out. It was a super difficult three months. But as soon as we found out we're going to Afghanistan, everything changed because it was like, hey, if you want to be on the varsity team, if you want to go to the show, you're either going to get your act together or you're you're going to stay here on the bench because we had a force cap and we knew that not everybody was going to be able to come. And, and so oh. from that moment forward, not only did I get a better platoon sergeant uh, eventually and I got some new NCOs and squad leaders. But from that moment forward that says, hey, you either will get with the program or you're going to get out, that was a godsend and made my life much easier. Now you know you go into Afghanistan, the focus totally changes. You're still a second lieutenant, I'm guessing, yep. and you're getting ready to go. So what were some of the leadership challenges that you faced in that transition from the discipline problems and the hazing to, hey, we're going to the show. Did that require a lot of serious manual labor on your part and your, in your staff sergeant's part, or did all just the natural order of things take over and the NCOs just all turned it on at the same time? It was much more the natural order. I, I, I would say it's, it's, it's so much harder to lead in peace in an organization like the Marine Corps, it, specifically, you know, at the infantry, it's, it's all these Marines want to do is fight. They could have joined any service. They could have joined any MOS. They joined the Marine Corps Infantry because they want to fight. And so once you have a purpose, once you have a why, you know, if a man has a why, he can achieve anyhow. You know, once you have that why that they can grab onto and, and see and aim towards, your job as a leader becomes exponentially easier. It's really, really challenging to lead Marines in peace. I think it's much easier to lead Marines in combat. Now, you get your own challenges once you get to combat. There's a whole myriad of sure. challenges. that So you have to be very careful what you ask for. But in terms of training, discipline, the focus when there's a combat deployment on the end of it is it's, it's, just, it's just such an easy – it's all persuasion, influence, right? And, and, and it's just so – it's just much easier when you say, hey, here's the very real thing that we know. Now – I, 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 you know, I keep jumping forward, but when, when I was a company commander, I had the benefit of being ruthless with my company and, and saying, although our deployment says we're going to Australia, I don't care. Not one Marine in this company will train for a Australia deployment. We are only training for a combat deployment. And if I find one of you who, who is out here preparing or training or thinking, yeah, uh, well, we're just going to, no, you'll be, you'll be out. And, but that, takes some it helps when you have some credibility it helps when you have some of that experience and, and it and and so I, I just i don't envy and i'm i'm in an infantry battalion now that's headed towards a in theory a you know a udp it is much much tougher on that junior leader 
to convince everyone to stay dialed in and to stay focused. And I think combat has a natural way of kind of resetting everybody and, and focusing everybody. Yeah. So just to spend a little bit more time on that Lieutenant time, because I, th I think there's some really valuable leadership experience that you can pass on to junior leaders is one of the things that I think, first of all, I still think hazing exists in the military as much as we want to say it doesn't. Maybe there's less of it. Maybe it's just hidden. I don't know. I'm just convinced that it's still going on because it goes on in regular society all the time, right? Fraternities are hazing their new pledges. It's just, it's a little bit of a embedded in culture, but it's not tolerated, right? So you're a brand new second lieutenant and you're a listener's a brand new second lieutenant checking into their platoon and, and there's some bullshit going on that lieutenant hears the, well, this is the way it's always been done. And, and you're struggling with this. Well, that's, you know, that's the way the Marine Corps is in the fleet. And Hey, welcome to the fleet, that kind of thing. Can you share some experiences about that can help empower a junior leader? And it doesn't even have to be an officer, right? It could be staff sergeant or sergeant or corporal. How do you put your foot down and say, you know what? Enough. That's enough. Yeah. I have my own philosophy about what is considered, uh, what, what is a corrective action? What is uh, an action to remediate a deficiency? Like, how do you correct a deficiency, whether it's a, a physical deficiency, a, a discipline proficiency, a, a competency? How do you correct something? And, and so we're talking about applying a corrective action. Mm -hmm. Hazing doesn't actually correct anything. I was avid, avid protector and just I embrace my NCOs and in the one of the worst things you can do in a unit is pay lip service and say, oh, NCOs, you're the backbone. NCOs, this is it's a squad leader, it's a sergeant, and then make them a toothless tiger. You, you've got to actually absolutely have some fear and respect and reverence for the NCO. And to do that, they have to have some ability to correct things at their level. And And so my take has always been if you can show me how your action you if you can connect the dots between here was a deficiency and here's how what you applied aims to correct that then you will always have my support you'll always have my support if at any point there's no actual map towards how that's actually improving that marine then I, I can't support you. And, and moreover, I love my Marines. I love them as my sons. And just like your children, you discipline your children because you love them, right? And and so I want you to discipline my the, the junior Marines. I want you to to make sure they're doing the right thing because ultimately I of the consequence of our profession and because I love them and I trust you that you are going to take care of them. And, and sometimes that is tough love. And often it's probably tough love, but also because I love them. If I ever find out you're just abusing or degrading them, that's my son that you're abusing and degrading. And so I will be the first person to have your back when you can say, here's the deficiency and here's how I applied a corrective action to it. And it was painful and it was pretty, but I was getting to this thing to correct that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to sit here from my office and say, oh, well, I no, if you can, I'm going to have your back. But if, if at any point I find out that you're just abusing or degrading my Marines, I'll be the first person to burn you because you no, know, just like I wouldn't tolerate that with my own kids. I will not tolerate that with my Marines. And so 
with my NCOs, I just made it very clear in, in that if there's any indication that you're just degrading or humiliating my Marines for your own ego, because you're an insecure coward, because you think you can, you're done. But also, I trust that you will not be degrading or humiliating them, and I will, I will support you to the end of the earth. Those are some pretty strong words that you use right there, and, and they, they resonated with me because I, I, for a second, imagined myself on the receiving end of what you were just saying. And I have routinely, throughout my time, heard people, leaders say, hazing won't be tolerated, I won't tolerate it, it's unauthorized, whatever it is. And those words fall empty on a lot of people's ears because they've heard it before. It's like the liberty brief, right? But then you just said something that was really interesting. It resonated with me, and I, I just want to play it back for you. But you said, hey, if I catch you, meaning you're talking to one of your subordinates, if I catch you degrading, humiliating, or abusing any of my Marines because of your own ego or you're a coward, I mean, when you start using those words, my brain turned on a notch higher. Like my ears opened up a little bit more. And I think those words are accurate and right. And I think that's probably a, a much better way to deliver that message to your subordinates when you talk about hazing than to just give the same old liberty brief over and over again that, you know, this won't be tolerated. Because those words that you use are actually pretty descriptive of somebody's personality who is doing those things. That was a really interesting way to put it. And everybody should probably go back and replay those last three minutes of this podcast episode and write that down if they're a new leader going into the fleet. Thanks for sharing that. I want to fast forward a little bit. So, Lieutenant, you have been delivered somewhere in Afghanistan. You're in your company area, and now you've been given a, an order to go out and patrol for your very first time. And, and Tom, I mean, like, your very first time, right? Like, you're, you're putting rounds in the magazine and locking and loading for the very first time, not on range. What was, like, I mean, I don't even know how to ask the question, man. What was that like? I, I mean, I was tasked to go, I was the first. Kilo first platoon ran the first operation out of our company AO and and we were tasked within 24 hours of being on the deck to run a 96 hour operation and one I was prepared to be violent so I, I, will, I will say that but but at the same time we had just come out of IOC was very coin heavy our entire pre-deployment training was very coin heavy. So at, at the time it was called EMB, which was formerly called CAC, now called ITX, right? Everyone likes to loves to kind of zero in on what it's called and show how salty they are by what they refer to that <laughs> exercise to. But Yeah, I'm a CACs guy, so yeah. Sure. There's my sure. salt. Yep. Yeah. And and so the end of that culminating exercise that you do as an infantry battalion was all coin for us. It was you're in the village for two weeks and you're doing key leader engagements and you're drinking tea and and so I was still drinking that coin Kool-Aid. And so I, when I went to Afghanistan, I still very much was there to win hearts and minds. Even though three sevens company commander had been medevaced and he came and talked to us, who is now a battalion commander, uh, I believe he's two six Cohen, who's just an absolute Marine Corps legend, by the way. And, and he, he had been medevaced and he came and talked to us back in San Mateo. And, and it was like, okay, well, that doesn't sound like we're going to be kissing babies here. Uh, and then, but even when I was still at Leatherneck in Afghanistan, we got these cultural classes during our, our SO and I. And, and so we're talking called, they had, you know, it's called Kayako or whatever, some kind of cultural yeah, language. And, and Leatherneck, for people that, that don't know, that's, that's describe Leatherneck in two sentences for listeners. It was the main hub in Helmand Province. It was where everybody flew in, it was the big logistics base. But it wasn't a city, it wasn't attached to a city. 
No, it was, it was not. Just a base. Yeah. But it kind of became its own city by the end of it. That was probably one of the problems with that war. And so I remember before getting on the airplane or the helicopter to go into my actual company AO and saying, and I was grilling my squad leaders on the little smart pack, the cultural smart pack. And I was like, how are you going to say, have a nice day, sir? And how are you going to say, thank you so much, Tasha Core? Like, and, and, and so those were the kind of things that I was focused on before I got on a helicopter to go into my AO. And then I get, I get to my AO and it was in 24 hours, you're going to take out 96 Marines and afghan army you're going to go secure three battalion objectives okay and i didn't have half of my platoon out of the entry control point before we were in a complex ambush we were up against the front of the patrol was up against an ied and was in an l-shaped ambush and that really set the tone for that deployment The, the fact that we weren't outside of the base and we were at an IED and an L-shaped ambush, that was really, that was it. That That's what saying was. And and so, you know, what am I feeling? What am I, I'm immediately saying, okay, no one wants to drink tea with me here. Everybody actually just wants to kill me and uh, we're going to be fighting. And so it, it was, it was a, it was IOC in that it was conventional infantry tactics that we were just applying from the get-go and attacking a defense in depth. And it was offensive, fire, maneuver, combined arms type stuff, right? I mean, from the first minute is is how that deployment started. Jeez, I couldn't even imagine not even having half your unit out of the entry control point and that hits. And, so, and so there was no that there was no really left seat, right seat either. It it was during the rip. This was my first patrol, and I was commanding it. You know, when one five came and replaced us, we did some rip stuff where it was like okay just a couple of the leaders and like a couple more of the leaders and now it's now it was it was no this is this is your first patrol you're in charge here's 96 uh, marines and afghan soldiers go out there for 96 hours and so it was it was quite literally a, very much a baptism by fire this question may be a little aggravating so bear with me i'm really i'm really trying to get it an answer but you're stepping out first patrol second lieutenant Complex ambush. I mean, I'm I'm guessing minutes into the stepping out on this patrol. Monday morning quarterback and give me an objective review of Second Lieutenant Tom Schumann's actions in his first firefight. What did you do wrong that that you learned from? What did you do right that you learned from? Debrief yourself. I was trying to move up to the the point of friction, which is where the IED was. And as I was attempting to move towards the front of the patrol, so so just for context, we're in Ranger file, which for a listener that maybe doesn't know what that means, it's it's a single file line, and we're we're moving in single file line because the IED threat is so high that you just follow the person in front who has a uh, mine sweeper. Uh, our metal detector and and you have 10 meter dispersion between each marine so when you think you, you've got 96 people in single file line with 10 meters between them you can imagine the distance that that formation takes and it's really like a you know the on the old cell phones there was snake you know that's what it always looked like it was like a very long snake and so as i attempted to move up towards the front to get better situational awareness I went between two cornfields. The corn was about 
like eight, nine feet high. The corn was all way, it was overhead. I went to go move between to the next cornfield and like across a road or something. Was there a break in the two? There, there was a break in the two cornfields, but it wasn't a road. It was just more dirt. It was just between two fields. Okay. There was, and, and as I entered that break, a PCAM hammered down on uh, myself, the three, seven platoon commander that was out there with me. And uh, one, one Marine that was with me, Corporal Nykirk. And we dove behind a pile of drying poppy that was stacked up. And so the poppy was providing us some concealment, but it wasn't providing any cover because obviously the 762 rounds were just tearing through you that right pile. Through that stuff, yeah. And I turned to my Marine, my corporal, I said, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to suppress that window where that uh, fire is coming from. And you're going to shoot a 203 round. Are you ready? I'm standing up suppressing. And so I started suppressing. He pops a 40 mic mic round in that window, silences that guy. We bound into the cornfield. And that lieutenant grabs me and goes, all right, Lieutenant Schumann, now that you've got your car, how about you make a decision? And I'm, I'm thinking, I didn't say this, but I was like, dude, my decision was to not die being in the PDF of that PKM. That was the decision that I had to make at that moment. And if you think I'm thinking about my combat action ribbon, and in an environment where where my platoon is in a complex ambush in the first five minutes, I'm pretty sure the the car was was coming. You know that was not the motivation in that moment. It was literally to not die right there. And and we handled that. And this maybe like two takeaways from that that first patrol. And we we pushed through that ambush, and then we consolidated in a separate cornfield. And of course, everything in the plan is going to shit. And nothing is going exactly how we had, we had uh, I had envisioned it, and I'm in a little sur- huddle with one of my squad leaders, my platoon sergeant. And we're saying, okay, like none of this is working. We gotta we gotta call an audible here, and I hear some mortars going out. I hear sniper rifles being fired, and I hear a couple of rifle cracks. And one, I'm like, hey, who is sh- shooting mortars? And I get the mortars up on the comm, like, oh, sir, we saw some guys egressing across the river that had been shooting at us. I'm like, um, we have to get mortars cleared. Like, you can't just, yeah. sh- like, uh, there's <laughs> there's stuff flying around here. You can't just shoot mortar. So, you know, some things, it's my my ability to command and control uh, were definitely very much put to the test. And my squad leader, Sergeant Decker, comes to me and he goes, sir, Teague shot someone. And I'm like, okay. Like, and he's like, they're dead. I'm like, okay, did they have a rifle? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, well, that's okay. And so it was a weird moment, like that mm-hmm. killing people is in fact authorized. And so that was like, that was something I'll, I'll, you know, I won't forget. We went inside a compound and we're searching this compound because we're looking for a patrol base to do, to stay the night for a couple of nights. And, and, and this is where you know, a lot of this friction is coming. And a grenade came over the wall and landed very close to me. And, and, and so, you, you know, when you, when you throw a frag, you always say frag out, but mm-hmm. when, it, when a grenade comes in, you say grenade so that, that, you know, like this is bad. And, and so like, we're all yelling grenade, grenade and like jumping. And so, and I'm thinking, how did somebody get so close that they were able to just throw a grenade over this wall? And I'm like, here's the thing. I don't know the composition and disposition of all my forces. They, and, and there's clearly, there's some gaps in my force that people are able to infiltrate those lines and throw. And so 
uh, battle tracking was one of the is, is always I think one of the hardest things that any commander does is 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 battle track their where their their forces are, especially when you've got forces over a hundreds hundreds of meters probably almost stretch out over a click very difficult to kind of battle track where everybody was one of the the things that i will monday morning quarterback uh, for the rest of my life on that uh that first mission is so you can secure an objective through observation so if you look at the tactical task of secure so we had to secure three battalion objectives you can secure an objective technically through observation and so we secure the first two objectives and then the, the third objective is a known enemy rally point and what 37 the unit that we were replacing had observed is that through isr is that the taliban would meet at this one house arm themselves and then go out and fight and then come back to this location and so what 37 had told us is that hey everything you touch there's an ied the walls the windows the doorways anytime you try to go into a compound you're going to get blown up I very much had this 10 foot tall vision of the Taliban when I, when I first got into country based on the information that I was told. And, and so I'm looking at this compound, we're in a tree line and I'm 200 meters away from this compound. And I'm like, well, it's secure. And undoubtedly that compound had weapons, ammunition, IED making material that, would be used against me at a future date. And so who knows what happens if I actually seize that objective and uh, remove that enemy cache site off the battlefield? Who knows if what, what those the, the consequences of that action are? All speculative. But ultimately, I wish I had read, Rommel had a, had a book called Attacks. And he wrote it about when he was a lieutenant in the First World War. And often, he carried the day by being aggressive. I just started to reread um, About Face by Hackworth. Uh, such a great book. And he's talking about how he's in Korea and he's a sergeant and he's got some North Koreans or Chinese soldiers and he's out of ammunition and they've got a bunch of guns and he puts up his rifle and he's, he has nothing in it and he tells them and he gives the Chinese command to surrender. And, and they drop all their weapons and they surrender to a guy without any ammo. And so I was initially not aggressive enough and I should have been, and I wasn't. Right. Yeah. You made a comment before and I'll just, I'm going to punctuate it a little bit with the, Hey, it's okay to shoot and kill somebody situation that, that happened to me too. I, I found that to be one of my most memorable experiences. The first time something happened to me when I was in Somalia, same thing, like you were just in training, training, training. And then all of a sudden it's for real. And, and, and Marines kind of like, it takes them a second to get into gear sometimes. I think that's a valuable observation to share with leaders if there's an occasion where they find themselves fighting, which probably will, is to think through you know, and talk to your Marines about, hey, you've got to switch your head into gear here. I had a very same similar situation. Some Marines were caught up on a roof in a raid in Somalia, and they were like, sir, they're, they're across the street shooting at us. I was like, well, f***ing shoot them. I mean, I remember yelling up at them in the building just like it was uh, yesterday. Same thing. I think that's an interesting observation to take out of um, a first experience like that for future leaders to know about. So kind of moving on from your lieutenant time and transitioning, I know you spent some time as a JTAC in first recon. Was that before your company command? 
correct. That was about a year after being in Singh and I was back in Afghanistan as a, as a JTAC and an as advisor. What were some of your aha moments from your JTAC time of first recon relative to some of your aha moments from your lieutenant time? Because I'm assuming they were completely different scenarios and situations, but still in a very similar kinetic environment. It was definitely a similarly kinetic. I was in a, I was supporting units in an area called Chaknawa. And Chaknawa, the firefights were very reminiscent of what we were experiencing in Sangin, but there was the IED, IED threat wasn't as high. So it was nice to be able to move around a little bit more without uh, constantly feeling like you were going to get blown up. The IED threat was still very real in Chaknawa. It just wasn't as high as it was in Sangin. For me, the biggest mindset is that you're an enabler, you aren't the commander. In some capacities, that's unique because most JTACs probably are typically enablers throughout most of their career. And so when I would find myself in a firefight, naturally I would want to default to my commander role and say, hey, here's what, <laughs> I wish you to attack this. And it's like, that's not what you're here to do. You are here to provide fire support for these folks to and and so i am really just fighting a radio connecting with you know an aircraft providing fires where i can and so th there was one time that i was i was with weapons one one and the squad was in a really bad situation we were pinned down in the open and i think this was probably one of their first firefights and there was a lot of dialogue between the squad leader and the platoon sergeant with that element that I was with. And it was just like, hey, we're in a bad spot. And it's like, we are in a bad spot. This is not a good spot. I agree. <laughs> and like the rounds are like getting more and more effective and closer. And uh, there was no air on station at the time. And I was working to get some air on station. But finally, I was like, okay, we can't stay here any longer. I said, hey, here's what we're going to do. This element is a support by fire. This element, we're going to be the maneuver element. When I tell you to start firing, fire on those windows. When I tell you to move, you're going to follow me, and we're going to move on that compound. Is everyone tracked? Okay, start firing. Let's move. And so that 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 was, but that was the anomaly. It was it was most of the time it was me to the commander. How can I support you? Or just having the initiative to say like, here's how I am currently actively supporting your scheme maneuver. And so just a little bit of a reorientation of roles, responsibilities, which is tough for a, a grunt to sit back, but also still very rewarding to be able to, to help people out through bad situations, yeah. tough situations. You were still a lieutenant at the time? For like the first two months of that deployment, I was a lieutenant, but I pinned on captain in Afghanistan. Okay. So that was basically your B-billet. I'm using my air quotes, right? Okay. Sure. That, that, that was my B-billet. So you, were, you stayed in the fleet, B-billet time, essentially stayed in the fleet the whole time. Correct. And I just know that you know, six months in Sangin with 3.5, you know, Bing West wrote a book about your company. And I don't mean to minimize any of the experiences that you had there, because I think we could probably talk about six hours worth of information on leadership. And I, I don't mean to, to minimize any of your time there by moving on to the next subject, which, because I want to now get to your company command time. So before we shift there, is there anything from your lieutenant time that kind of want to conclude with there for listeners who are listening to this from the standpoint of like, they want to hear what you have to say to, in order to make themselves better leaders. And, and I use this joke with um, 
when I just finished up an interview with Sergeant Major Marine Corps, Sergeant Major Black. And I said, hey, every time a lieutenant asks you a question, it doesn't matter what the question is. I'm telling you what they're asking you, which is what can you tell me that will keep me from f***ing up when I check into my unit? Something from that sort of context. Sure. And I got that question a lot because I just came from the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. And then I I think probably a lot of my followers are junior officers or current midshipmen or an ROTC and, and NCOs too. Yep. Many people want to know what's the hack, right? What's the secret? What's the secret? What's the magic spell? And there isn't one. And, but it's, you know, leadership is simple, but not easy. To me, it's three things. You have to first be good at your job, you know, and, and competency matters and you can be a great person and you can really care about your troops but if you just aren't competent meaning technically and tactically proficient then you you can't be a marine leader you have to be proficient to me i can really like you as a person but i can't follow you unless you are proficient or competent because you're going to get me killed Next is character. If you are not a man or woman of integrity, if, if your actions don't match your deeds, then you're, you're not someone who I can trust. And then finally, it's, it's just caring. And caring is a big one, multifaceted. And, and I care about you. And because I care about you, I'm going to train you hard. And because I care about you, I'm going to administratively make sure that you're promotable. I'm going to write you good initial counseling. I'm going to I'm going to provide you corrective action when I need to. Caring is 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 a, every Marine officer ever has always said they care about their troops. Not every Marine officer has done the things that actually take care of your troops. And 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 so there is an administrative element of caring about your Marines, and then there's the tactical element about caring about your Marines, and there's just a uh, overall kind of personal empathy and uh, part about caring about your Marines. And, and so to take care of your Marines, first and foremost, means to provide them hard, realistic training and prepare them for combat. And as a lieutenant, I think that's what I conflated as caring about your Marines. Over time, I gained maturity and understood that there's more to caring about your Marines than just providing them hard, realistic training, that, that, that getting Marines promoted, getting Marines awards, all that is actually caring about your Marines. And so I think it comes down to competency, character, and caring. And at face level, all of those things are pretty basic. They're all very challenging in their own ways to apply. And also, while we want to, of course, have a, a respect for our NCOs and staff NCOs, what happens, I think, at TBS is you get so inundated with listen to your NCOs we emphasize humility so much, which we should, but you have to come in and from the first day, you own that unit. You're responsible for everything that unit does and fails to do. And so no one else is the commander of that unit. You're the commander. And so you have to act like a commander from the first day. There's not OJT. It's not, well, let me just get my feet wet. Well, let me, it's no. You're checked in. This is your platoon. That's it. You're the guy or gal in charge. And so act like the guy or gal in charge from the first 
minute, which it's that's significant to be immediately issued 35 lives, 40 lives, and all the gear and equipment uh, associated. That's, that's a significant responsibility to accept on your first minute on the job, but that's we, we are in a unique profession. And so own it and command it from the very first moment while, of course, maintaining humility. Right. It's interesting because we talk about our leadership traits and principles, and those are all really great academic. JJ did tide buckle, memory, mnemonic kind of thing. Every single one of those words is, is really important, but it, just knowing those words doesn't really teach you how to do those three things, be competent, be of good character, and care for your Marines. And I reflect back to something when we, I was talking to Sergeant Major Dan Reynolds, we were talking about Lieutenant Staff NCO relationship at, at the platoon level. And he uses this in yet about the lieutenant who comes in and really doesn't know what to do. So he says, okay, I'm going to take the platoon on a six mile run at a 630 pace kind of thing. And I'm going to show everybody how tough I am. And I get where that comes from. And maybe 23 year old Dave Armstrong, well, I wasn't running 630 mile minute miles, but probably had the same sort of thing. Like, because I'm so new, I have to show them that I'm good at something. And so much about the Marine Corps is built around your physical fitness that I'm going to start off by showing them that, you know, I'm hard as nails and they go out and they do something like that. I, I think if I was going to do it all over again, that I would focus on those three words that you, that you just used and come in and show my new unit that I was competent, that I was good character and I cared about them. And I would focus on those things to assert the fact that I was in command, like you said, like it's your unit, be in command of it. I think if you focus on those three words, you're probably heading down the right path on your first day of assuming command uh, and it's assuming command of any size tactical unit. And this idea of the staff NCO platoon command relationship, it's, it's something that there's a lot of discourse on. It's worth having that discourse. It's just a relationship. It's a relationship. Right. Like, every other relationship and it, it requires the same things that all relationships require communication, trust, you know? And so it's, it's not, not some ethereal thing. It's just how do you maintain relationships with people that you care about in any facet of life? And so that's, you know, relationships, you, you got to be vulnerable. You got to be honest, you got to be authentic. And, and so that's the platoon commander, platoon sergeant relationship. And so I think we overcomplicate it and, and try to make it more nuanced than it is. It's, it's just, you, you be a good dude or you be a good lady. And that's how relationships form and blossom and thrive. Right. And, and when you aren't those things, that's when relationships suffer. And so we don't have to overcomplicate that platoon commander, platoon sergeant relationship. It's like, how do you maintain any of your relationships that are healthy? That's what you should do with that relationship. To your point about the lieutenant that checks in and, and, and takes his platoon on that run, I think that vignette, I, I hope, has, is kind of an antiquated one because that vignette is so often used that hopefully most yeah. officers have picked up that that's probably not the way. But it's so tough to establish credibility as a second lieutenant. And you have... Everything kind of, many things going against you and biases and assumptions uh, about you. And, and so, yeah, you may be tempted to demonstrate some level of competency or, or, or something through a tough run like that. And, but you do have to find ways to establish some credibility with the platoon. 
doing that through a really fast run is not the way, not advisable as, as one way to do it. But you'll find small opportunities to establish that credibility. And, and that's things like you're the first one up in the morning, you're already dressed, shaved, ready to go when you're in the field and got your kit on and the, and the Marines are like, and when did, like the sir was like the last one patrolling the line last night, uh, checking on all the positions. And now like he's already, you know, at the CP ready to facilitate this first patrol. And, and, and so there, there, are, there are small ways where you can kind of demonstrate that hardness to gain some of that credibility. But I would not advise that that, that traditional kind of vignette way of, of I'm going to go on a run. But that's where we come back to that, that leadership is hard in that establishing that credibility that you are competent is really tough for the, for the brand new officer. It was so much easier in a lot of regards as a company commander, which I, I think we're going to get to because I come in and I already have money in the bank. You know, I have money in the bank that, okay, right. This guy's been to some places. He's seen some things. I have a credibility reserve already. I can lose that credibility really fast, right? I could fall out of a hike. I cannot know how to do fire support. There are any number of ways that I can immediately deplete that credibility, but I'm, I'm already starting with a little money in the bank. Whereas as a Lieutenant, it's very, very skeptical. And you've got to demonstrate that early and often. Yeah, it's, I think it's easy for two officers to sit around and talk about the lieutenant checking in, the lieutenant checking in. That's a natural place for us to go. But just real quick, I, I also think that there is a component of this that could be distilled down to the NCO level too. There are leadership traits that are important for young NCOs to have as it relates to the success of a platoon. Like a platoon, a platoon success does not hinge on the ability of the lieutenant to be a good lieutenant or on the relationship between the staff NCO and the lieutenant. There's a lot of other leadership moving parts in there. And I'll tell you that every, every single officer I ever saw not do well as a lieutenant, I could trace back to some sort of other leadership failures at the NCO level. And maybe as we move on to your company command time, you just kind of finish up with any observations for the young leaders who are listening to this that are corporals and sergeants? I think the same thing applies. And I, and I get this, I get that yeah, I corporal, yeah. I, I, I get that DM all the time from, from the corporal who's checking in from security forces or checking back into the fleet from you know, a, a B billet. I'm going to be the new NCO. I'm going to be the new squad leader, new team leader. What do I need to do? And it, it, the same rules apply. Be good at your job. Being good at your job goes a long way. And so be technically and tactically proficient. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a new NCO and, and, and even like the lateral transfer, so non-infantry Marines will go to SOI as corporals and then kind of check into the, back into the fleet as I feel like insecure about it. It's, well, you've got to demonstrate proficiency. And when you demonstrate proficiency, you build trust and people are more apt to follow you. And, and, and once you demonstrate proficiency, it's like, Okay, well, how are you as a person? How do you care about me? But if that proficiency and competency is an impediment, obstacle, and roadblock to developing anything else with anybody. And so if, if you've got that part, then hopefully your character is, is good and, and hopefully you care about the troops. But to be a leader worth following, you've you got to be first and foremost proficient. Yeah, and set the conditions for everybody's success is the sign of a good leader. Just like a good company commander sets the conditions for success for his battalion commander to be successful by doing his job. I'll conclude the, the conversation about the NCO say, I think 
something that's way harder than being a lieutenant first day on the job is being a corporal his first day on the job after he just got promoted. To me, I think that's probably the biggest, I think that would be the hardest leadership adjustment to make of, of any of the leadership ranks that we have, you know, getting promoted from Lance Corporal to Corporal. I just think that that is, that's hard. And my hat's off to the ones who are really, really successful at doing it. Such an important rank, but it's also very hard because just one day you're different. Well, yeah. Well, it makes it hard is that you, they're not your peers anymore. And, and so right. you've got those personal relationships already established and those friendships are established. And it's like, you can still maintain those to whatever extent, but there it is. Peer leadership is always the hardest leadership and making sure that everybody recognizes we are no longer peers. I am now a corporal, not a last corporal. That is a very difficult transition to, to establish. And for some of the troops who may not be mature enough, they might say like, Oh, why, why are you acting like this? You're just, you're just my boy and not. And so, those are real challenges that I think the newly promoted corporal has to navigate is, is that, yeah, you're, you're now an NCO and, and you got to act like one. Yeah. So time machine forward. Now you're a captain just for some context, uh, as we get into your command time as a company commander, did you go to EWS or a school? And then did you, when you checked into uh, three, four, did you serve on, on a staff billet before you picked up your company? After I went to recon, I went to the School of Infantry and I was there for three years, which was one of the most rewarding billets of my career for sure, because it's just tons of sergeants. There's so many sergeants at SOI and it's just great to be around sergeants all the time. And I did blended seminar EWS, which is, was some kind of new, okay. uh, it was a pilot program really. So for four or six weeks at a time, I would go down to the airfield on Camp Pendleton, do a brick and mortar EWS, and then I would do non-resident. And so it was an awesome way to do EWS. It was a very efficient way to do EWS. I did what's called the blended seminar EWS. And okay. I checked in three, four had been deactivated. So when I checked in, there was only H&S company. There was no line companies. Okay. And so they had just reactivated three, four, which reactivating a battalion in and of itself has significant challenges and so mm -hmm. i was initially the three alpha probably for um probably four or five months until lima company became a company and then uh once we reconstituted lima company i had two second lieutenants two security force ncos and 96 privates from soi that was what i had starting off as a company commander so my my lieutenants were both platoon commanders and one was the acting company xl and one was the acting company company gunny and then my security force ncos were the platoon sergeants and it was a hot mess it was very tough uh <laughs> those early days were very painful standing up lucky lima my my lieutenants turned out to be great platoon commanders. They were not great XOs and company gunnies. It was really ugly there. It was an ugly baby, a very ugly baby for a little bit, but uh, we, we eventually got to, to where we needed to be. But I know from experience that when you reconstitute a unit, I, I went through that too at, at a battery level where they just created a battery out of nowhere. It's more than just assembling a bunch of people. It's gear, it's barracks, it's desks, it's where is your space? Where, where are your Marines living? 
where are the Humvees? Where are the weapons? That's all. That stuff's got to all come from somewhere. And when stuff comes from somewhere, it's yeah. never the good stuff. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> That's a, that is an insight of someone who has reactivated right. and, a unit. You know, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. There, there is the whole, you know, signing the CMR and every unit is told, Hey, don't give up your, your shit, but we all know what happens. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's a difficult place to be a leader when you're trying to reconstitute a unit from, from a, a gear perspective as well. But so you, you came in company command. I, I want to start off by asking the question. And the genesis of this question comes from a previous interview that I did with a Lieutenant General Furness, where we had a quick conversation about one of the hardest things that an officer ever has to do is lead subordinate officers because nowhere in our Marine officer training program are you ever taught how to lead subordinate officers. And you learn that through osmosis by cobbling it together. Like this was my experience as a lieutenant when I had these three captains in charge of me. I'm going to assemble the best of their leadership traits. I'm going to eschew the worst of their leadership traits. And I'm, I am now going to treat my lieutenants based on that, those formative experiences. And, and that's where you learn how to lead other officers. So can we start out the conversation about your company command time by talking about maybe again, phrase the question, can you do an after action on your time as a company commander as it related to mentoring and leading lieutenants? I think I had a, a good rep as a company XO. And when I got back from Sangin, I cross-decked the Lima company. I was the XO for several months before I went to, to First Recon. And I worked for my current boss now. He was the company commander. Now he's my battalion commander. And okay, I had a fresh boot drop of IOC lieutenants come in when I was the XO. And I was a... Uh, aggressive guy uh i i think i probably still am an aggressive guy so when those new lieutenants checked in i had very high standards and expectations and the issue i didn't have to deal with this as much when i was a company commander but there's there is somewhat of an issue of lieutenant entitlement and the idea that like you made it and that you rate or that and and so to me when i when a new lieutenant comes in I want to see a humility, a hunger, and an eagerness to to get after it and to go prove themselves. I think I was very fortunate in my lieutenant drop as a company commander. I had four lieutenants who were all technically and tactically, they were very proficient. It's a personality management, definitely, uh, to an extent. Mm -hmm. One of my lieutenants was not mature enough and so that that was like telling him hey you need to you're not in college anymore you know one of my lieutenants did not respond well to any criticism he was pissy and got an attitude and so for him it was like working on a constant attitude adjustment and i had two lieutenants who were kind of just naturally rock stars and and so i am admittedly not an easy person to work for period I am specifically hard to work for if you're an officer. And I am ruthless in my expectations and in my standards with my officers. I just don't provide a lot of space for excuses. And I don't have a lot of sympathy for a second lieutenant. And I just work harder, work harder. And I, 
worked my lieutenants very hard. I was very ruthless. I had very high standards. But I'll tell you, you know, when I checked in as a, a platoon commander, my company commander didn't have those things for me. I wasn't challenged. He didn't set high expectations or standards. And I was very autonomous. And so I really loved that, that I got to kind of go run my own show. But I also came in the Marine Corps to be challenged. And I still needed that mentorship and that development as a second lieutenant that I, I, I felt like I lacked in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I came in and uh, when my lieutenant check in, I, I think they felt challenged. I, I felt like that. And, and that's, you want to be an infantry officer, not because it's easy, by the way. Like you didn't pick, oh, I want to be a Marine infantry officer because I think this job's going to be really easy. You're a person who naturally aspires to challenging environments. And so I think I provided that challenge and very, very high expectations. And at times, probably very soul crushing guy to work for. But at the end of the day, I understand the gravity and the consequences of this profession. And I understand how critical that role is as a platoon commander, what that capacity for someone who is good at that job can do and what the capacity and detriment of someone who is not good at that job can do. And I will only tolerate, you know, one way. And, and it's ultimately because it all comes down to the Lance Corporal. And so however I'm treating my officer, it's because I care about that Lance Corporal and I want the best result mm -hmm. for that Lance Corporal. And so I'm going to be very tough on you because I want you to take care of, train, and develop that Lance Corporal to, and, and prepare them for the rigors of, of combat. So that's interesting. If I could phrase a question the same way I did the question about the first patrol that you took, like, can you Monday morning quarterback and look back on your command time, given all the things that you were just saying, your exacting officer, you know, you demanded the best. No command is perfect. No commander's perfect. Where did you mess up? If you could go back in time, what would you take a do over on? Yeah. As it relates I, to the, the, to the officer relationship, like the sure. second, the Lieutenant stuff. A buddy of mine, you know, Justin Gray, he was a mm -hmm. peer. He was, he was one of my peers at the time. And Justin had a much more harmonious approach. He doesn't like the word balance. I won't use the word balance. He had a much more harmonious approach to how he viewed his time in command and that he still got quality results, but managed to be uh, much more compassionate, I think. And I had almost here's how i view it i have no compassion when it comes to our professional relationship i just want just give me the highest best result and don't bring me any other shit like i don't want to hear mm -hmm. it i don't care just deliver results 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 now for example one of my lieutenant's mom had breast cancer when he said hey sir i said hey don't even worry about the leave request. Just go. Take as much time as you need. Don't you don't need to call. You you take it. and and so I am in a personal capacity. I still very much care about you and love you. You know, I I still care about you and I love you as a as a person. So when you do pre present to me as a person, I'm very empathetic and I'm very much. I will stop everything I'm doing and do whatever I can to take care of you. But back to being in, the, in like the professional setting, I am cold, hard, ruthless. And so I, I think, and I ran them 
the throttle on high from the first minute until the last minute. We were the battalion main effort. We were the battalion main effort at mountain warfare training. We were the battalion main effort at McCree. We were the battalion main effort at the deployment. The results spoke for themselves with that approach and the philosophy. Now, at the end of that deployment, I had burned everybody out. And there's a better way to do that. And, and, and so if I could do it again, I think I would take a more nuanced approach a more harmonious approach where I still keep some of the human personal element as a factor throughout and treat people with a little, treat my lieutenants with a little bit more humanity than I did. And it's tough because I have, when I think of an officer, I think of what are the expectations that I place on myself? And I'm very mm -hmm. ruthless and I have extremely high standards with myself and I don't allow myself to make any excuses. I don't, I'm not easy on myself. And so what that's, but that is not, necessarily the best practice I, I i think and so i learned a lot and i didn't see that until after the deployment where everybody was so on e and burned out and i saw that okay you you achieved all these great results but at what cost and there's probably a way to do that without running everybody as hard as i did that's really reflective and honest and i think extremely helpful to people who are listening. So thanks for sharing that introspective look back on your command. I, I don't think that's an easy question to answer. So I, I appreciate you being really honest about it. It's, it's helpful, I think, to hear somebody be able to look back and say, gosh, you know, I, I could have done things different. And comparing and contrasting against one of your peers is, is helpful as well. You did have a problem with your first sergeant, and you've documented some of that on social media. It's been a fascinating read for me. Can you hit the wave tops of that and look back on that and say, here's what I learned, good and bad from that experience. Here's, here's I would do it exactly the same way or I would do it differently. You know, he, he was an MP. He was frocked to first sergeants. There, there's a lot of things that the deck was stacked against him, you know, coming in. Mm -hmm. And again, I am not an easy person to work for and I have extremely, I want to go and I want to attack. But he came in, you know, we, you talked about the second lieutenant who says, let's go on this run and, and for at a six mile pace. He, that's what he kept saying is, 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 and right away, my intuition, he was like, well, sir, if you want to go on a 12 mile run, we can go on a 12 mile run right now. I'm like, no, I don't want to go on a 12 mile run. I want good rosters. I want order and discipline. Uh, I yeah. want morale. Like <laughs> right. I, I don't want to go on a 12 mile run. And, and like, that's what he was good at. He could run. And I'm like, I, First Sergeant, why are you talking to me again about like demonstrate? And, and, and he wanted to have this, he wanted to have this sh shoulder by shoulder, holding the line, united front relationship, which by the way, I also wanted to have, but he'd never, he couldn't contemplate that I can't have that relationship with you while I'm constantly unfucking all your mistakes. And so, if you want right. to get to this tight relationship, I'm aiming at getting towards that as well. I can't form that with you until you actually are decent enough at your job. And, and so, I mean, just a complete lack of proficiency administratively. And it wasn't like I needed him to be a great tactician or technical on the it's 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 i just needed the basic things that that you'd hope to receive from a first sergeant i was not getting those in any way and and what i found is that 
I have this very junior company, like very junior in a lot of ways, as in it was, it's only a company that's a couple months old. Like it's, it's a brand new actually company. Mm -hmm. And then junior in that we don't have any NCOs that they're almost all my NCOs were security force NCOs. So very few NCOs with fleet experience. I've got brand new lieutenants. And what I found is that I was spending the preponderance of my time supervising my first sergeant. And that is not where my time and effort should have been. I had a lot of other issues to worry about and focus on rather than training and supervising my first sergeant. And so I, I, it came to a point where I can either give him a task, supervise it the whole way through to ensure success, or give him a task knowing that it would going to fail and then have to go back and, and fix that task. I mean, everything from we would go out to the field, he would give me a roster. I'd be like, that's not the, that's not the, those aren't the numbers. And then he would erase them and then just start to change them. And I'm like, no, no, you actually have to go get the numbers. You can't just start like penciling in what you think I think the numbers are. That's not actually how accountability works. Right. Falling out of hikes. I was suffering in silence. I was trying to kind of just internally manage and fix this problem. And there were so many issues within the company, he just being one of them, but probably the, the most pressing, that I did not take the time to reach out to my battalion sergeant major, to my CO. I was just trying to work the problem internally. And, and I probably should have started early communicating that, hey, this, this may not work out. He, I think, understood the writing on the wall pretty early on and, and started like an IO campaign that Captain Schumann is crass and Captain Schumann hikes too fast and Captain and so he he was working like the back channels and I knew that he was talking to mm. the the master guns and the sergeant major and the battalion XO and I just didn't have time to do that and so but it, it finally came to a head where I understood that I had to engage the sergeant major on this and once I had the sergeant major support it became much easier to deal with all this but really, the thing that was so time intensive was the counselings. And every counselling had to be documented. Mm -hmm. It had to be tied back to the initial counselling. It had to highlight the deficiency that was tied to the initial counselling. I had to highlight the recommendation. I had to provide a roadmap of how I wanted us to get there, how I could support him to get there. And then here's when the next evaluation. And so just the amount of documentation that it required to be able to finally present my CO and Sergeant Major the package and say, here are 10 counselings over the last seven months with zero growth. And on top of all that, there was like this high school kind of junior high little back channeling drama going on that I just didn't have the time or appetite to deal with. I can tell you that uh, it was my greatest leadership challenge. And he was a liability and, and not in that he just couldn't get counts, but in the good order and discipline as well. And that the NCOs were so afraid to be NCOs because they thought he was going to charge them if they were if they said a mean word or get, gave them a, a mean look to the privates. And so basically taking out the claws of my NCOs and putting kids' gloves on my NCOs in a company that had very little discipline or leadership it was just it was a microcosm of all the worst things kind of all colliding at once i was 
mentally, emotionally in a very tough place navigating that challenge. And finally, it was not a relief, which is, you know, when, again, what's something that I can look back on. I, I should have been adamant that it needed to be a relief, not a shuffle. Mm-hmm. And it was a shuffle and he became somebody else's problem. And I know that he, again, became a very difficult challenge for that next person. But just like my Staff Sergeant Henley moment, my first Sergeant Leatherman came in. And that was my brother. It was everything I could ever hoped or dreamed of for a first sergeant. And so it's, I have these, some of these negative experiences with staff NCOs, but I have greater, equally and greater positive experience with my staff NCOs. And so it's, it's just, no one wants a good counterpart more than the commander. Like I, I, I know I need and how vital and how critical that role is and how much mm-hmm. utility and how much that role offers and provides a platoon or company. And when you get that right person, the overall effectiveness of the unit is just incredible what, what happens when you get that right staff NCO in, in, in place. And so first sergeant, now Sergeant Major Leatherman came in and he was everything I had hoped or dreamed of in, in having a first sergeant. And we were lockstep. We were tight and, you know, thank God that he, he came in and he's out there still crushing it. So, Yeah, that's an awesome story. I, I'll, I'll weave in a civilian saying, I didn't learn this in the Marine Corps. I'll also say this doesn't exist in the Marine Corps. Half of it does. It's a saying, hire slow, fire fast. And that's a civilian term as it relates to making sure that you've got you know, all these terms, the right people sitting in the right seats on the bus. Everybody who's you know good to great. Anybody who's ever read that kind of stuff, you know what I'm talking about. And man, I still can't do it well, right? I am an emotional hirer. I hire fi- I hire fast, just because I I can I tend to over rely on my EQ, and it's a personal failing of mine. But one thing that I have never gotten used to in the civilian world is the fire fast. And I have a business partner who does it very well. Uncharacteristic for a marine officer to be able to to not be able to fire fast and for a civilian to be able to do it. But it's such a, it's such a stark difference in where your formative years are as a leader. I don't think we do that very well in the Marine Corps. I think we hire slow through all the boot camp and OCS and everything. And then we fire slow, if at all, and we shuffle. And I think there's some room for improvement on that across the board as an organization to fire. I mean, when we fire fire people or let people go in the civilian world. It, it's like this, you get brought into a conference room and the person sits down and says, today is your last day here. We have decided to give you a severance package of this. It's all outlined in this letter here. Somebody's outside to help you uh, carry your stuff out to your car. We, you know, we appreciate all the work you've done here, but uh, your job here no longer exists. That's the end of it. There's no counseling sheets. And I mean, there should be, but when it, when it gets to that level, it's just, you're just gone. And it's always done in the context of it's in the best interest of the organization for profits or whatever it is. And a lot of these decisions are money driven, but yeah, I think there's a lot of room for improvement on that. That's the art of it. There's and the, so the sciences do the, all the counseling, do all the paperwork, but the, mm-hmm. the art of it is, is, is again, that you owe that person training, developing and mentoring. And so if you're a newly frocked gunny to first sergeant and it's your first time in the infantry, I owe you some training, mentoring and developing to, to help you get, to where you need to be. And so long as you have the aptitude, that's fine. We can grow together. By the way, I need training, mentoring, developing to be a 
company commander th that I was receiving from my battalion commander. He was training, mentoring, developing me, helping me be a better company commander. But I had the aptitude to be a company commander. It was clear and evident from day one that this individual didn't have the aptitude. I still have to do the due diligence of the training, mentoring, developing just to, to confirm that. But it would be much better organizationally if it becomes apparent that this person does not possess the aptitude to be able to go ahead down the route that you just proposed and say, hey, you're not the mm -hmm. right person. And, and, and But we that's not what we're able to do. And, and you end up with the wrong person in the wrong billet for much longer than is healthy for the unit. Yeah. I, and you know, anytime you make a decision to send somebody back in the military, you talk before about how you don't want to deal with drama. And this is, I think this is why shuffling happens. It's because you're immediately going to get a call from your regimental sergeant major and then your regimental commander. And I mean, the, it just, the, the shit just starts piling down on you. Why, 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 why? And sometimes it's easier to just say like, oh, we've got an IA billet open. Let's shuffle somebody out the door. And nobody wants to deal with that, you know, cascade, that avalanche of drama that's going to come down from higher explaining everything. It's tough. That's a great story. And thanks for sharing that with everybody. I do want to take a few minutes and talk about a couple other things going on in your life. So you're, you're the new OPSO, right? For 3.5 or XO? I can't remember. OPSO. OPSO. Nice. Well, congratulations on that. How was it, how was it walking back into your old command? Is it, was it, is it totally different? Is it, I mean, of course it's totally different, but you know what I'm getting at? Like, what was your reaction to coming home, but seeing it all renovated? Yeah. Well, it's, figuratively. It's, yeah, definitely figuratively, because it's still the old crappy. <laughs> yeah, right. There's still mold uh, all over the place, yeah. I'm sure. Right? Uh, I, you know, I checked in in my alphas, sitting back in the same conference room that I did, uh, well, when I check in, September 2009 is when I checked into to 3.5, and then I checked in again July uh, to 2022. And so that, that was definitely kind of surreal experience back to where I would say like I was born in San Mateo, the 62 year at Camp Pendleton. That's, that's where I was, uh, that's where I was born. And so to come back home to the place that I was raised, it's all very special to work for a boss who I admire and I trust and I respect. And, and my, my boss is actually my current DH6. He, he is the reason I designated in the Marine Corps. I was so in such a bad place post singing and so disillusioned with my a lot of my leadership that I, I was, I was going to get out and he came in and I don't think he knows this, you know, and, and he came in and was everything I'd hoped for in a leader. He was the person who challenged me, who had high expectations, who was good at his job. And it was like, and, and it was like, I want to be like him and maybe I can do what he's doing for this company someday. And, and I'm going to stick around. And so I didn't have, like we talked about my origin story about the Marine Corps. I, I, I didn't have big lofty goals in the Marine Corps. I didn't even know I wanted to be a Marine. And then all I knew is I wanted to fight. And then I got to fight. And I didn't have a subsequent goal after that. I wasn't, once I got to be a platoon commander, I was like, okay, well, I did what I wanted to do in the Marine Corps. I, I, and then, and so when I was in such a bad place post Sangin, a lot of moral injury, I, I think, and, and just a lot of disillusionment. And, and so, I wasn't going to stay in. And then I, I saw, okay, well, maybe I want to stay until being a company commander because if, if it, and, and th this one person in, inspired me. And so getting to come back and work for him is uh, really an incredible opportunity. What was moving was I, I went down to the 5th Marines Memorial Garden on the day I checked in after I got out of my alphas. And uh, I spent 
you know, an hour in that memorial garden. And there's the OIF wall, there's the OEF wall, there's a Vietnam memorial down there. And it's just such a special and humbling place and such a poignant reminder of the legacy and the history and the purpose. And so that was really that hour in the, in the Memorial garden really reset my compass and was really important. And then I haven't been around junior Marines in a long time, you know, three years at the Naval Academy a year at the war college. They're so refreshing. I mean, they're the same knuckleheads (laughs) that you, you know, that they always are. And they're just, whatever but it's just 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 seeing lance corporals and this the the riffraff like those are my people and so just uh seeing them is is reconnects you to your purpose and, and why you do it and what makes this organization so special is these goofballs and so just yeah. being around that that junior enlisted marine just walking around the cp they're you know all over and and so that that was really pretty cool for me as well just to be around that enlisted junior grunt which is been the person who I've always loved and admired and uh and so just that that's been really good yeah it's it's where that saying comes from you know people who get out they say I'll never miss the circus but I'll always miss the clowns such a true statement any good aha moments to pass on to other field grade officers who are getting ready to check back into the operational fleet I know you've only been there for a couple days maybe weeks tops but and, and anything hit you that's worth passing along to somebody who's getting ready to check in this summer? I, I mean, I really had the luxury of developing my mind over the last couple of years. And this is at this point in the organization in my career, that's it's always your mind is your most lethal weapon as an officer. But when you're a platoon commander, it's it's very much coupled with just how violent and aggressive you can be. And this is where you're really start to get paid for your knowledge work and, and what and and so I just feel so blessed to have had four years to think and study this profession and outside of this profession uh, so just reading the humanities and different works of fiction and that's all been I think really helpful as I come in I'm I think maybe more mature in, in that element I just read uh, Peter Drucker's um, what is it? Effective executive. I think it's, it's, it's called Peter Drucker effective executive. And so I've been thinking very much in terms of how can I be most useful? I've been thinking about systems and processes. And and so what what I want to make sure is that, that I'm, I'm the most, how can I be most useful to my boss and how can I be most useful to the companies and, and to be that conduit. And, and, and so I'm, I'm very much in a customer service business now, whereas I am support and and so i want to make sure that my objectives align with the the end user and so i'm having conversations with the company commanders and the the lieutenants and the staff ncos and saying you know what is it that i can do for you and what aren't we doing for you what can we do more of and and so mm-hmm. really i'm right now i'm in a a fact finding window where I, I am trying to reserve judgments, go get ground truths and make sure that ultimately I always stay focused that I am here to help you be ready and be lethal. That That's what I serve to do, to help you be ready and be lethal. What is it that is hindering that, that we're doing as a battalion? And what 
do you need more of? And and so that's where I, I'm in a very formative period right now. And I look forward to, you know, I, I, I operate a lot of time very flat where I, I like to get, have a very open kind of communication with the, the, the ground troops. And so I'm forming kind of an opsell per company where I'll have a, a, a Lance Corporal represent, representative, an NCO representative, a, a platoon sergeant and a platoon commander. And I will keep that dialogue open and meet with them probably bi-monthly and say, okay, Lance Corporal, you sergeant, you platoon sergeant, platoon commander from Lehman Company, Kilo Company, any company, weapons, tell me we're all meeting and, and what do you need? What are we doing? What, where are we going that I can help support you? And, and, and part of it is an informed Marine is a happy Marine, you know, and, and so much of what Marines will bitch about. It's like, why are we even doing this? What are we even doing next week? What are we doing today? And, and I'm a narratives guy and I, I, I like to deprive narratives where able and create a, a, a better narrative. And so ultimately, even in the most perfect, if Chesty Pooler was the battalion commander and Dan Daly was your sergeant major and John Bassalone was the, all the Marines would still find a way to bit, find a way to bitch. Okay. So doesn't matter. They're, they right. still, okay. <laughs> but what I want to do is, is I want to say what training Lima company, Lance Corporal, what are you doing next week? You tell me what Lima company is doing next week. Okay. How can I support that training? And by doing that, I'm, I'm hoping to, that when the companies are, the Marines are grumbling and saying, oh, I don't even know why. It's like, no, actually there's a, there's a Lance Corporal in your company. There's a, and there's a sergeant in your company who helped tra- uh, develop and shape your training every week. And they're briefing. And so if you don't know what we're doing, it's not that the battalion isn't telling you because I've actually, I, you've got an operation cell within your company. And, and so I'm hoping that at every level by bringing in uh, the junior Marine, the NCO, the platoon sergeant, the platoon commander, uh, and, and have a represent from, and have that come across from all four platoons, you really de- attack that narrative of, of why are we doing this or what are we doing? And, and, and so I want ultimately, I, you hear it in every unit, is that, that grumbling about just the not knowing. And so I really want to attack the, inform- the IO. I want to do the IO and that, that you are informed and that if you aren't informed, don't mother F battalion talk to your company ops reps because they're at these meetings and, and they have the, the gouge. And so that's kind of one of the things that I initiative that may be a little bit unique that I'm uh, trying to, to get underway. Yeah. God, that's, that's an awesome idea to pass along to listeners, feel great officers who are hearing this, getting ready to check in or newly promoted in school maybe or something to come in and do that. Cause you're right. It, I think there's nothing more aggravating than not knowing. And if you're, if you as the OPSO are hearing from those operation cells, how you can best be supporting them and what the battalion training schedule is, and it's their responsibility to go back and say, Hey, we collectively as the OPSO developed this for our company. This is why we're doing it. There's just probably a lot more fun and a lot less standing around wondering what the hell's going on, standing in the dark. Yeah, that that's a fantastic idea. Thanks for sharing that. You have a new book coming out on August 9th of this year, 2022, called Always Faithful, a story of the war in Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul, and the unshakable bond between a Marine and an interpreter. I'm going to read a couple of the remarks from some of your early readers, Carl Marlantis, who's the 
author of Matterhorn, which is, by the way, one of my favorite all-time books, along with The 13th Valley. He also wrote What It's Like to Go to War in Deep River. He wrote a review, and I quote, in plain old good writing, this book tells how two individuals fought the forces of the Taliban, Afghan corruption, and the U.S. government bureaucracy to bring one of the interpreter's families to safety and freedom. It's a gripping and poignant story of quiet heroism with hair, with a hair-raising ending. You will finish this book feeling triumphant for the few that got out and angry and sad for the many we shamefully left behind. Bing West, who's also a best-selling author uh, and whose recent book, One Million Steps, A Marine Platoon at War, chronicles your uh, company from 3-5 and your time as a lieutenant. He said, a classic heartwarming story of two hardened warriors, one Afghan, the other American, who keep faith with each other and emerge triumphant from impending death. Tell us some more about the book. This is fascinating. And where the hell did you find time to write a book when you were at Naval War College? Sunday late nights is, is that answer. But yeah. uh, it wasn't one of my goals to write a book. I, I didn't set out to write a book. All the things that happened between my interpreter and I, I wish they had happened differently. I wish there was not, and I did, wish there wasn't a book here. Is is kind of how, how I would I would start. And in that, Zach and I, he was my interpreter when I was in Sangin. Zach, many interpreters translate. Like that's just what they do. They just translate. Zach Zach did so much more than just translate, and he really did become part of the platoon. And on multiple occasions, accepted a significant amount of risk to his life in combat under fire to to do things that he really became another one of my marines and so he and i have maintained that friendship since 2010. we started his application process for a visa it's called special immigration visa in, in 2016 and for five years he was denied 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 over some paperwork and when the president made the announcement that we were going to withdraw last April, April of 21. I asked Zach, what does that mean to you? He said, that means my family and I will be killed. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to get to work. So I started a kind of guerrilla media campaign. And from April until August, I had a second time, part-time job of getting Zach out of Afghanistan and his family. He's got four children and a wife. And it was one of the largest operations I've ever planned, maybe the largest operation I've ever planned in, in complexity and scale, uh, you know, starting with getting him from Kunar province to Kabul and then trying to get him out of Kabul. And the Marine Corps prepared me well for it in that everything, again, that could go wrong went wrong. The amount of friction, friction was abounding everywhere. Uh, there's lots of fog of war. And the entire time, this this guy has been persecuted. He's seen people killed in his, uh, when he was at the airport, you know, people were getting machine gun right next to his children. It was just harrowing from start to finish this, this escape attempt uh, for his, his family. And ultimately the system never worked. Ultimately a friend of mine, my TBS classmate of mine who ended up doing an inter-service transfer to the air force. He's a pilot and he was there to fly with the PJs. He did a personal favor to me, and on the third attempt that Zach tried to get out, he jumped a wall and, and pulled Zach and his family in. No, nothing worked well. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. But thank God at the end of the day, Zach and his family are, are safe and here in, in America. The, the story has a lot of drama, has a significant kind of climax, and so it, it did. it lends itself to 
being written uh, as, as a book, Zach's story became one of the central stories during the fall. And so in July of 2021, we were on the cover of the New York Times. He and I did some national TV. And so his story became a very central story and kind of emblematic of the fall of Afghanistan and, and the betrayal of our allies, specifically our interpreters who had served alongside us. And so that, again, we, we, that just so happened to, to be the case. And so people were interested in our story. When people approached us about writing this book and, and a, a big publisher wanted to publish it, to me, it was important to write it with Zach. I was only ever going to write the book with Zach. And one thing that I learned when I was at Georgetown, I was in a, I took a class called Asian American Literature and, and Professor Christine, Christine So, she, you know, she, we, we made sure that we heard a lot of these stories in their own voices rather than, hey, here I am, a dude that spent, what I spent, 16 or 17 months in Afghanistan. Let me tell you about Afghanistan. Here, I'll tell you about what what Afghanistan, what the last twenty years of Afghanistan is all about. It was really important to say, well, maybe we can have a person from Afghanistan who, who is, whose entire life yeah. has been shaped and defined by this war tell you a little bit about what this war is about and what 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 the fall of Afghanistan means to him, and what those implications are for him in in, in the country. And so, the the opportunity to to, to write this with Zach was something that I, I couldn't pass up. And, you know, I left Afghanistan in March of 2013. Zach spent the next seven years after I left Afghanistan under constant persecution. He could not leave his village without fear of death. He couldn't, he, he was unemployed because he could not take a job anywhere outside of his village without fear of being killed. He was still receiving night letters to his father's house several years later from the Taliban saying, we know who you are, you're an infidel, you served with the Americans, we're going to find you and kill you. And so the idea that this guy did something heroic and courageous and honorable for our country, for America, and for his own country, he was doing it for his country first and foremost, but also for the Marines and, and for the people that he loved in this country, and because he believed in, in, in what we were doing. And then the rest of his life is condemned to being persecuted because of that, that decision that he made. I, you know, we, that's why they, they made the SIB program is because they understood that by serving with the US forces, that you would face persecution, that there would be risk to your family. So we said, hey, because of that, we'll give you a visa to, to get you out of that perilous situation. Zach upheld his end of the obligation, we did not uphold our end of the obligation. I was a person who just tried to keep that promise that we made as a nation to our allies. And, and that's kind of what, what the story is about. That's great. The book uh, comes out on August 9th. I'll have a link to it in the show notes, uh, a non-affiliated link, just straight to the book. Are proceeds going towards anything, Tom? Zach and I are splitting that book 50-50. So most everything else that I do, well, everything else that I do with Killzone or my Instagram, everything goes to PB Abate. This was an opportunity to, Zach is living in an apartment, a single bedroom apartment in San Antonio with his four children and wife. You know, the opportunity to hopefully help Zach start his American dream here uh, is, is, is part of what, what we did with this book is, is to support him as well. 
that's great. So people who are listening to this that go out and, and buy the book, just know that your some of your proceeds are going towards helping Zach, who was a tremendous asset to Tom and the United States of America, helping him get on his feet here in this country and start a new life. And hopefully, just like the American dream for everybody, provide a better life than he had for his four children. So please keep that in mind as you buy the book. But the other half of the proceeds goes towards a foundation charity that you've set up. Let's let's talk about that. Well, well, before, I'm sorry, before we jump off on PV Abate, just one last thing about Zach. How's he actually doing? You mentioned that he's living in, but how is he doing? Yeah, he's a great American already. You know, he's he's working construction and he's hanging drywall at a at a cancer hospital. You know, that, that's he works at a that's his, great. His, his job site is they're renovating a cancer hospital down in San Antonio. And that's just what many of our immigrants do is they take tough jobs that no one else wants to do. And he's out there in the heat in San Antonio working on a construction site and building a cancer hospital. And so, you know, he and his family are safe. That is the first and foremost pressing concern and so that the the fact that they're safe and they're healthy he's you know he's happy and and thankful so that's great let's use that as a segue to to wrap up here because i I want you to spend some time talking about your passion project pb abate tell us a little bit about sergeant abate and the mission of that organization sure sergeant man abate was one of the snipers that supported kilo 35 he was posthumously awarded the navy cross the actions that he took that he was awarded the navy cross are truly hard to even imagine the 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 bravery and courage the platoon had was ambushed the squad leader was shot and they were ambushed in the middle of a minefield and so as every person went to go help the casualty that person hit an ied and so it, to the point that within the first few minutes there were five urgent casualties some of them already killed some of them amputees and so everybody stopped moving, everybody but one person. And, and, and so these people who stopped moving are very brave Marines, you know, but the environment that they're right. in was so catastrophic that everybody stopped moving because they knew if I move, I'm dead. Sergeant Abate ran and treated all the casualties. He ran and swept the LZ for them to land, which he's not an engineer. He just ran out there and basically proofed a lane for a helicopter to land with his feet. In, an, in a known minefield. He repelled the enemy through his own fire and maneuver. Really just truly uh, one of the most heroic, courageous people, but also just as a human being, uh, just one of the most genuinely, just a beautiful dude inside and out. He was the dude that everybody gravitated towards. The entire heart and soul of the company, you know, gravitated and rallied around this one figure that was kind of larger than life. But that never went to his head. He he was clearly the coolest and most badass amongst us. Like there was no debate or doubt about that. But still, extreme humility in how he interacted with everybody. And um, so, yeah, p- part of the mission of PB Abate is to continue to honor his legacy. When I was at the Naval Academy, uh, a few of my Marines had committed suicide in pretty rapid succession. So I started to define the problem, went into problem framing, you know, what, what is the problem? And what I found through extensively reading these uh, VA suicide reports was that the, the leading proximate cause of veteran suicide were feelings of disconnectedness and isolation, and that the remedy to that was uh, in community. When, when people are in community and feel connected, they're much less likely to commit suicide. And so I said, okay, what veteran service organizations are out there getting people connected and getting them in community? There's about 45,000 veteran service organizations. There's a lot of them, but most of them have 
a clause or a prerequisite to be a member of that veteran service organization. And what the data will tell you from the VA suicide reports is that non-combat veterans are twice as likely to commit suicide as combat veterans, which I found surprising. But when you think about it, service in and of itself provides such a tribe and a purpose that can't be replicated anywhere else. And so it's not the combat, it's the service that is, is the thing that people uh, are struggling with after their transition. That's the thing that they're, they're really missing is that, 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 that squad, that platoon, that battery, that connection that they had, and then they had a really clear purpose. And, and so that is not a combat veteran exclusive need. It is a basic intrinsic human need that is, I think, intensified by service. And so most of these other organizations said, uh, well, you, ha- you have to be disabled, you have to have a disability, you have to be wounded, you have to be uh, uh, special forces, which in my mind, I celebrate that as a nation, we've rallied around the people who have made the most sacrifice. I think that is a, a, a great testament to the character of our country, that we take care of our wounded and that we take care of the, the Navy SEALs and, 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 and the Green Berets and the MARSOC, the guys who make the, the biggest sacrifice. I think it's a, it's, it's a great testament. So I, I don't ever denigrate that. But I, I also think it's an issue that about 99% of the service organizations out there, you have to come in with a check in the box that, that says, I was a Navy SEAL, I'm combat wounded, I had a combat deployment, I have a disability. And so you've really got to narrowly define yourself. And what I wanted to say is like, I think service matters, period doesn't make you special, but there is something significant about for a, a time in your life, whether that was in the National Guard, the reserves, active duty, that you said for a time in my life, I'm going to raise my right hand and I'm going to serve this great nation. And we should have a place where every single person who has raised their hand at some point feels like that they can rest and refit, that they can enter friendly lines. And so I set about making a patrol base. The, the only uh, requirement for entry to our patrol base is your service period. So if you're on active duty and you're a PFC, it's your patrol base. If you did three years in the reserves on the National Guard, it's your patrol base. If you got out of the Army or Air Force 20 years ago and you never went on a combat deployment, it's your patrol base. If you were a truck driver or comm or data or a cook or in the band, it's your patrol base. And so all are welcome at PB Abate. And I wanted it to be, I think there's real healing in the outdoors. So I wanted to be outside. And so we went and got 330 acres out in Montana and one of the most beautiful areas in the country. And I wanted to involve something physical. So you, you, you do a service project while you're out there. You know, we are men and women of character who like to serve. And so we always find a, there's always a service project in and around the area that we get involved with. We, we do a little hike, we, we get around the fire. And we do these fireside chats and where I really find that the most healing and cathartic part of the entire experience is just these fireside chats where there's no rank. When you come to PB Abate, you don't introduce yourself as I'm Tom, a Marine, infantry, I deploy. It's, it's none of that. It's, it's, no, it's, it's just you just say, hey, I'm Tom. Because immediately you'll start to set this hierarchy of, oh, you, you're Air Force or, oh, you're didn't. It's no, no none of that nonsense. It's just everybody around this fire we know has served and we want to just get connected. And so we have what's called the return to base program where we do free of charge. We bring you out, we pick you up, we feed you. 
and you do the thing that you're interested in. And so we've had programs, everything from uh, book clubs. We've got a golf club going next week. We've got uh, a fight club, a strength club, a music club, an art club, a yoga club, you name it. We're doing this. And, and so many of the organizations are veteran service organizations are doing like great things, but it's, it's like fly fishing. And I think fly fishing is awesome, but maybe fly fishing isn't everybody's thing. And so we, we, tr we try to make this, we want to be radically inclusive and the most accessible veteran service organization out there. So we say, what is the thing that you like to do? Art? Okay, then let's, let's do art at our patrol base. We're going to do an art program, you know, yoga, golf, you know, okay, then let's do that thing at archery. It doesn't matter. Whatever the thing that we're not going to say, you got to do what we're into. We're, we're going to find, we're going to meet you where you're at so that you always feel welcome at our patrol base. And so we, we run those programs all summer out there in Montana. And then we have our local chapters because there's got to be a way to endure and sustain that connection in that community. And we want people all around the country to be able to tap into that community, that connection. There's about 46 local chapters all throughout the country from Southern California to Boston, to Chicago, to Austin, Texas, you name it. There's a PB Abate chapter in your area. And again, every quarter we do a service project because we want to continue to, to demonstrate that, that veterans are men and women of service and character, that we're not victims, that we're people who look to continue to address needs and serve our communities, uh, that we're not looking for a handout. Actually, we're looking for a way to continue to contribute. So we do a service project. Every local chapter does a service project once a quarter and then once a month they meet. And, and sometimes they go for a hike. Sometimes they go grab pizza. Sometimes they go to a baseball game, whatever that looks like for that local chapter captain. But um, that's kind of who we are, what, what we're doing. And, and undoubtedly, uh, PB Abate uh, has and will continue to save lives. Just last night, the book club met to discuss Ender's game virtually an Air Force veteran joined us and she said, look, I didn't read the book. I never went to combat. I always wanted to get back into connecting with other service members, but I wasn't eligible for any of these organizations. And she said, I'm here tonight because I'm in a really bad place. And this right now is the thing that I needed. And I'm just, thank you for, and I, and I told her, I said, you know, we built the patrol base for you. This is your patrol base. You're the exact person we built the patrol base for. And, and so it's, it's been really special to, to watch it, it grow. And uh, I just feel very fortunate to, to be able to fill some sandbags and, and to walk point within this organization. That's great. I do need to disclose. I mean, I'm helping you in this effort on PB Abate. What I really liked about learning about all of this as I've gotten to know you over the past year and a half is that. I do. And, and I'm, I'm a victim of this too, right? I miss my tribe. I miss, I miss being, I'm retired. I miss being part of the Marine Corps tribe. So I fulfill that need by, you know, doing this podcast or hanging out with my buddies or on Instagram, meeting all these new people. And I'm, I'm able to fill that need, but this organization exists to help people reconnect. And, and I remember the very first time I sat down and had a drink with you and you gave me the example of, Hey, even if you were uh, a flight crewman on an, on a C-130, you had a four people that you were on that plane with. You had a tribe, you had a group. And then when you get out, you don't have that anymore, necessarily have that anymore. And some people are very, very successful in moving on from that and finding new tribes and things like that. And, and then some people, some people aren't. And this organization exists that, you know, like you said, if you swore the oath, you're welcome. And it's not about who did what, 
who who's got the you know the better story, who had the tougher job, or if even if you served or not, it's hey, if you if if you miss your tribe that you had in the military, come back and join us. And and not only when you join us, but we've got something for everybody. That's what you're saying. You're saying, you know, hey, you like fly fishing, you like golfing, you like fighting, you like hunting. There's something out the books. There's something out there for everybody. So so it's not just about being part of a tribe, but it's being part of the tribe and finding a common interest. And and you mentioned before that, you know, come walk point is and fill a sandbag. That comes from, I think I remember one of Sergeant Matabate's, either his rules of war or I think it was one one of his rules of war was everybody must walk point. If if I'm slaughtering that, uh, give me a course correction there. No, the rules of war what one is is someone must walk point. Right. And that's great. I will tell everybody who's listening uh, again, I'll I'll have the link for PV Abate in the show notes, but we're raising money, right, Tom? I mean, we're we're trying to we're trying to get out there and and get some money in the door so we can keep providing all these services for people who are trying to reconnect with the tribe. I have friends that listen to this, right? And I've got family that listens to this, and I've got people I don't know who listens to this. Here's what I know. You go to that website, PV Abate, and there's a donate button at the top. And I know every single person listening to this podcast can donate something, $5, $25. It doesn't matter. If you're listening to this, I'm asking you to go to the website and donate something to help your brothers and sisters who are in need of a tribe and an organization that's doing a great thing to provide that tribe for them. So that is my personal ask to every single listener. I don't ask for any money to help offset the cost of this podcast. I don't ask for anything. I'm asking for something right now. I'm asking for everybody to go donate something. You'll feel good and it'll make a huge difference. And Tom, that, that there is, it's right there. I, it must be a connected to a GoFundMe or something, but they can do it right there on the website. I know because I've, I've done it. Yep. There's a donate button right on the homepage. And, and, you know, there can't be any barriers to entry with PV about it. It can't be like, well, I would join your organization, mm-hmm. but I'm not into, you know, fly fishing. That's why I say, okay, well, what are you into? Then let's do that thing. And it can't be like, well, I would join your organization, but I, I didn't do this thing in the military. And it's like, okay, that's no worries. It, it, I would join you out in Montana, but I can never afford a flight to Montana. It's like, that's why it's all free of cost, you know? And so, so it's, it's, there can't be any barrier to entry. You, it has to be accessible in every way, shape and form. And so, so the idea is like, we're going to fly you out. We're going to pick you up at the airport. We're going to feed you. You know, so there, there really is no barrier to entry in this. And so, that, you know, part of the, the financial need there is that, that every, all our programming is free of cost to the participants. And so, yeah, I appreciate you making that pitch. Yeah, definitely. That, again, I'm just going to reiterate that. I'm asking every single person listening to this podcast to give $25 a PB Bate. And if you're my friend and I'm listening to this, I'm going to ask you every single time I see you if you've donated money yet. And I'm going to be a pain in the ass or you're not going to be my friend anymore. So all five of my friends, I'm coming for you. <laughs> so thanks, Tom. Thanks for sharing that. You know, as, as we kind of wrap up here, any final observations on leadership that you just want to share with, with everybody, or maybe something you've learned about leadership through PB Abate and or writing the book? Sure. I've had to really adapt. You know, I'm the president of PB Abate. I've really had to adapt my leadership in a lot of ways because you're dealing with volunteers pv abate is 99 we have one higher you know it's 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 an all-volunteer organization and so when when i go back to that lesson that i learned as, as a company commander uh maybe how to 
be more empathetic and understanding when when you're dealing with people that that that's the only way i've been able to to run pb abate is because i am at the whims of my volunteers and so when when people come and fill a sandbag with pb abate and then something a life event happens and they start school or they get a new job and they have to step away you know i always am to say thank you for your service you know i i never i'm never like no pressure no guilt it's like hey for a moment in time you volunteered your you volunteered your time and that and 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 we couldn't literally we could not do this without you and so finding ways to to inspire a group of volunteers to donate their most precious resource or time has been a challenge but it's but fortunately we've had uh so many great people like you step up and say hey i'm willing to walk point on this and and, and i'll and i'll go out there and, and, and fill a sandbag and so yeah i think that that has been the the biggest one of the challenges is, is how to lead a group of volunteers where in 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 the marine corps like you more or less you have to listen to what i'm saying you know it's like their orders uh yeah. a, a volunteer it's like no i'm not going to do this tomorrow and so uh setting uh, establishing an environment that is conducive welcoming and supporting uh, a, a group of volunteers is is particularly challenging but the only way you you do that the the way that people are willing to donate that time is that they see an impact and and so you've got to create a mission with a purpose that that resonates with people and so uh, I, I think fortunately the, the impact is is clear and tangible in some ways it's it translates very well into just like in the Marine Corps, you, you need a, you need a purpose and you want to see results from your missions. And so we're, we're trying to provide that, uh, for our volunteers as well. Yeah. Ultimately I can provide leadership vignettes on a hundred different scenarios all day. And, and many of them are unique to that situation, but ultimately I think, you know, we've covered what I think are the basic tenets of, of leadership uh, in depth throughout this, this conversation. That's great. All right. So as people go to the website and they see the different cities that there's organizations in, are you looking for volunteers in those cities? And if so, are there places on the website where people can look and say like, Oh, wow, I, I live there. And, and geez, they're looking for somebody who does X, Y, Z. I can, I can volunteer some time. Is that information yeah. on the website? So we're trying to build the a patrol base, an organization that all there's about 17 to 20 million veterans that every single one of them belongs. So when you're trying to build an organization that has an umbrella that supports about 20 million people, it's an all hands effort. It's all hands on deck. And so I don't know what every individual person's sandbag looks like that they can fill or where each individual person can walk point. I just know we need your help. And so for some people, that might be that they can donate $5. For some people, it might be that they're, they can donate their IT services. For some people, it might be that they can donate their administrative services. It's whatever, whatever talent, time, treasure that you have as, as a person, we'll, we'll take it. You know? and, and so if you want to lead a local chapter in your city and there's not one, please do. If you, you know, I don't think we have a kite surfing club let's say like you you love kite surfing like well start the kite surfing club because i'm sure 10 other people like to do that that are veterans and 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 you know what we'll find a way to support that you know we we, we did a surf club program out here in camp del mar and pendleton we're doing a, a a dive club we're sending some veterans out to the bahamas to go dive 
the idea is like whatever you're into, we're into, and we'll find a way to support it. And so if you're passionate about something and, and you want to fill a sandbag, there's a, there's a form there to sign up to volunteer and, 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 and we'll take you because it, it, it really is an all hands on deck effort. That's great. Thanks for sharing that with us. I, I plan to get out there and, and fill a sandbag myself. If I'm doing it with you, just remind me at 55 years old to use my legs and not my back because uh, I am not that 22 year old uh, body anymore filling sandbags. But yeah, thanks for that, Tom. Well, Tom, thanks so much for making some time to come on the show. I, I know you or the podcast, you've been super busy checking into a new command, writing a book, running a PB bot day and, uh, and moving your family across the country. So you've been a busy guy and uh, I appreciate you making the time to come on the podcast and help emerging leaders be better and work on themselves and, and learn something from people who have some great experiences to share. And you're certainly one of those people. You're also a little bit of a, a reluctant celebrity. And I know that that's got a lot of, uh, time pressure as well as checking in as the opso and probably a lot of sleepless nights for the next year or so, or, or yeah, sleepless nights, long, long, not a lot of sleep for the next, uh, next year in that job. I know it's a busy one, so I appreciate your time. And I know all the listeners appreciate your time too. So thanks a lot for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.